When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saying though, if you're comparing capitalism to communism mm-hmm. and what you get is 1% of the population is massively wealthy and 90% are starving to death, then the populace is going to go, this sucks. The capitalism loses. Yes. Capitalism. Exactly. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. What's up, dog? Not too much. Do you want to start? Nope. All right. So I've got a couple. But I've mentioned this to you, and I think there's a broader theme here. Because okay. I've been thinking a lot about the state of America and the economy and competition with China, what it looks like on the, on the front lines. And I mentioned that we, three years ago, as we were into our business, but still not making quite enough to live in America, we're living in Medellin, Colombia. Mm-hmm. And we were looking for several different marketing firms and types of people to help us. And one was was... We spoke to, you actually spoke to this person and was pitched at like, this person is going to help you take it to the next level. They've got these sophisticated things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been on that person's email list since then. And my, mm. Okay, now, and, I know, <laughs> now I know what we're talking about. And then so I got an email from them the other day that's like, look, I get it. Entrepreneurship is hard. Three years ago, I had no money in my bank account and everything was failing around me. I was like, wait a second, three three years ago? Like, <laughs> three years ago, you told us that you were going to make us all this money. Yeah. Uh, and Three uh, years ago, you were the six-figure to seven-figure. Yeah. Guaranteed, no problem. <laughs> and we've seen this a million times, but there, there is this crazy pyramid scheme yeah. of teaching mm-hmm. that is going on where... At no and and quite frankly, some people you can BS your way to the middle or upper levels of this pyramid by just passing the buck to a group of people beneath you, which I believe that this particular individual did. Yeah, like, oh no, you can do great. There's a guy I won't name because I don't want to get sued, but <laughs> I, I think he makes ten million a year, mm-hmm. and all he does is teach other people how to coach other people to make money, <laughs> yeah. and no one is actually producing for the economy. And almost no one, I think, is actually turning a profit, even in the pyramid scheme. Yeah. But he's killing it. It's, it's crazy. There is no rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, when you insulate yourself and you've got – so here's what sometimes happens. You have these lineages of coaches and you've got your big daddy coach at the top with a successful coach right here because that coach has 10 successful coaches and then they have a couple. And so they're actually so insulated from the fact that at no point – did anyone teach anything other than how to use their sales tactics to, to trick earn money? Other people. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the new age pyramid scheme. But it's totally believable when you're high up mm-hmm. in the pyramid because you're looking beneath. You're like, these people just bought a yacht. Well, yeah. there's also a couple of classic tricks, which coming from private equity seems insane to me. Yeah, that people will do because they'll they'll say that in one day they made. A thousand dollars. Gosh, I get so, these right? emails so, like, all the time. Big, there's these things that people don't know internet marketing. There's a launch, which is where you collect all these emails, you don't sell them anything, and then you make this thing where in one day you try to sell as much as possible. Yeah. Then they'll take the success of that day, which is a thousand dollars, right? First of all, it's revenue, not profit, but let's not focus on that. And it's also too Go slow here because I don't think that people totally grasp okay. this. Okay. So it's two months of work to do this launch. Yeah. And in one day they make a thousand dollars. And then their coach will say, My clients make $1,000 a day, which is 
$365,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You go, no, they don't. Mm-hmm. No, they don't. I actually have seen this data. They make $1,000 every two months. Mm-hmm. You can't just extrapolate it and yeah. multiply it. Like technically someone bought Charisma University at some point in the last day. And they bought it in, an, in, in a, a millisecond. <laughs> so do I make all of the money from Charisma University in that nanosecond? No, I make it over the course of making an entire YouTube video yeah. that then sells it. And the thing is, there's no, in private equity, you can't do this because it's just fraud. No one will buy your company. But mm-hmm. in this internet marketing community, there's oftentimes you're just trying to sell to someone that's not savvy enough to figure out the lie. Mm-hmm. And so you say, this person makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Here's a thousand dollar day. And the person looking at it doesn't know to think, well, wait, that that's not every day. Also, it's revenue and you paid for ads, which means it was probably to that person. They probably took home $200 mm-hmm. that day. So this person might be making $200 every two months. That's mm-hmm. their business. Yeah. And But then they're selling you on how you can do it. And if they and make any how money. how they made yeah. $1,000 in a day. Yeah. And so now they're trying to convince you to hire them because they made $1,000 in a day. But they didn't. They yeah. made $200 in a day. And it took two months. So anyway, uh, there's... I don't even know how I got started on this rant, honestly. But there's just all these little tricks that you see when yeah. you're like in this community and you see them over and over and over again. Everybody goes to the same bag of scammy tricks. Yeah. The CoffeeZilla has done a great job on, on some of these. Spencer Cornelia, who I've seen pop up in the comments, does a great job as well talking about some of these. I have a document and I've of, of scammy tricks and it's it's in breakdown style. I've got footage of yeah, the yeah. people doing these things and I'm going... Is this appropriate for the channel? Is it worth slinging stones at particular individuals? And I don't know the answer to it, yeah. uh, but it's a it's a private passion of mine. Well, I actually <laughs> do want to throw out for people listening here who do want to be entrepreneurs, right? I wanted to be an entrepreneur very badly after yeah. I had the four-hour work week. Only learn from people who have made money doing something besides making money. So teaching, the, Doing something besides teaching, teaching people, people to sorry. make money. So if the person who's pitching you, if their business is I teach people how to be rich, absolute non-starter for me. I would never recommend, even if they might have good lessons. Mm -hmm. But there are people, Tim Ferriss, he ran Brain Quicken. He had a supplement company and then taught how he ran his supplement company. Mm -hmm. Ryan Dyson, Digital Marketer, if they're to be believed, that company that teaches how to be rich is only 10 to 15% of the money they make. They actually make tens of millions of dollars selling survival knives and uh, camping stuff. And they Mm -hmm. have all these other non-how-you-can-get-rich businesses. So I go, Mm -hmm. okay, they are doing it. You know what I mean? It's not a pyramid scheme. And then Eben Pagan, uh, he just wrote Marketing Step-by-Step, the audio course, which I have taken and know is good. Mm-hmm. So I can vouch for that. Well, one. he also did dating for a long time. He, was, he, <laughs> yes. made, he made tens of million dollars with, with dating products. Yes. And so those are the only three people I really ever recommend when people ask me, who should mm-hmm. I learn from? Mm-hmm. Not saying there aren't other good ones out there, but I'm like, I know that these three people make money other than scamming you to hire them to teach you how to make money. Yeah. And if somebody's main business is teaching you how to make money, for me, that's a non-starter, even though I'm sure that excludes some good coaches because mostly it excludes really shitty coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's crazy is, and we've, we've had a handful of conversations. We're doing a, you know, we're, we're trying to find someone to work in, in this, uh, in our company as marketing. And it's so easy to find people who uh, have, found ways to make money without delivering value to the customer mm-hmm. in various kinds of ways. Um, sure. You want to give the example of the pop-up guy? Sure. Sure. Okay. So just to hammer home what Charlie's saying, there was a guy, correct me if I'm wrong on any of the details. I don't remember he exactly, invented, but yeah. He created, basically there was pop-up marketing. Like you, you've been on a website and you're trying to do something and read about sports, but you get these random pop-ups that are 
meant to take you to somewhere else, and that website pays for those clicks, he figured out how to make that pop-up invisible. Mm-hmm. And so you would literally just be w- scrolling over. And you'd be like, oh, I'm going to just try to like click this thing that's on the screen. And you'd hit an invisible pop-up, mm-hmm. which would take you to a different site, and he'd get paid. Yeah. And his value add was figuring out how to make the pop-up invisible. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't want to be on this site. You didn't mean to click the <laughs> yeah. pop-up. That and he and that's black hat marketing. And he considers himself to be a business whiz who deserves all his money because mm-hmm. he's managed to trick people into going places they don't want to go. So that's yeah, what yeah. Charlie means when he says non-value add. And there's there's just a lot of it. It's crazy that that there are so few people that have ideas like Elon Musk, which mm-hmm. is like, what does the world need? Let me build a business around that. And instead, the first question is, what will make me X thousand dollars yeah. of month per month with the the least amount of work? And how can I extract yeah, yeah. <laughs> as quickly as possible? And I don't know if that's an American culture thing, if that's a human thing. I haven't I haven't seen entrepreneurship enough in other countries to be certain. But it is. And then I think of the larger economy and what's happening and, and what appears to me to be serious class tension that is occurring and a yeah. massive redistribution of wealth with these. Uh, the fact that there's been massive bailouts for businesses and twelve hundred dollars to individuals that don't have jobs anymore. So like rich are getting richer, poor are getting poor, poor want to be rich. Uh, it just all seems like it's part of this larger machine, which kind of sucks yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, and is not is not sustainable in any in any sense of the word. Yeah. Can I, before we talk about the macro, can I give one sure. positive example? Of sure, sure, sure. Just because I, I, if I were listening to this at 22, I'd feel a little bit demoralized. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to be Elon Musk or oh, else yeah, I'm yeah. not. But we have a friend and he likes fitness, the keto diet, paleo community. And he started a bone broth company because he lived in that world and went, there's really no good bone broth out there. And so he made a company called Kettle and Fire. So instead of being this, I'm going to click an invisible thing that I didn't mean to, he said, I'm going to try to make the best bone broth for people that are trying to be paleo. And he's far more financially successful than we are. Mm-hmm. And he's not necessarily Elon Musk, but he is in that community adding value. So yeah. like, you don't have to try to get to Mars to be good for the world. You just have to make a product that people genuinely want yeah. instead of getting them to buy or, or click or whatever. Well, to be clear, people trick. do genuinely want to make money and you have to be able to deliver in a way yes. that yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. pass the Sorry, puck. I was talking about relative to the guy <laughs> yeah, who's yeah, getting yeah, you to yeah, click yeah. invisible things. It's like you don't want to leave the page, but he's just forcing you to with like subterfuge. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But yeah, no, I mean, people do buy those things because they want to get rich. So I guess you have to sell something that people genuinely want that's good. Mm-hmm. I'm reading the uh, the Netflix book by what's his name Reed. Is it, it's not Reed Hoffman. I think that's the guy from that's LinkedIn. Right? LinkedIn. And anyway, I'm reading the book by by him that he had just released. And okay. there was just one interesting note that when they were hoping that Blockbuster would buy them because they were mm. so small and Blockbuster was so big, and they didn't get bought. But then they were encouraged by the fact that Blockbuster's business model was apparently heavily dependent on late fees which is to say like they didn't make a ton of money when you rented a movie. They made all their money when you didn't take it back on time and Mm. then they absolutely screwed you. And his hypothesis was any business that that is getting most of its revenue from a miserable experience for the customer is vulnerable. Yeah. (laughs) And, And so that was kind of what like, kept them going and shaped their philosophy going forward, which brilliant. I thought, yeah, that's which brilliant. I thought was very interesting. And it reminds me to a degree of, 
gyms where there's a rush of people who come in on January 1. And what they're praying is like, look, we don't have the facilities for all these people to actually get yeah. fit and work out. So I just want to bang their credit card. And I've experienced this. And then when, you know, when they leave the state or the country, make it impossible for them yeah. to, to get out of it. No, if a gym is month. So for instance, near us, there's a, a gym that happened to have a roof with a bunch of AstroTurf. Mm -hmm. Right now, gyms are in hot demand because of COVID. Yeah. They're running month to month yeah. because they don't have to trap you. Yeah. They're delivering something you desperately <laughs> want. You know what I mean? Yeah. When a gym has a 12-month contract, what they're saying is... You won't be here. We think, <laughs> we think that you're going to want to escape. Like, nothing should need a 12-month contract. Because Very people, few things. People that, will just yeah. come in to the yeah. extent that they want to use what you're selling. Yeah. So, yeah, when you... I mean, there are exceptions. Sometimes people have to invest a lot into something. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, whenever we see a business contract, for instance, that's 12 months or longer guaranteed, that's almost assuredly a no for us. Because just like... All this means is I have to stay if I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. If you thought you were going to make me happy, we could have a day-to-day -day contract. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would pay a certain amount of money. And quite frankly, what the contract does from their end is it prevents them from being able to raise the price on you, which if they have an excellent product, they might be interested in doing after three, four, five, six months. Yeah. But they know that that's not the case. They know that the person who loses from the contracted agreement is you. Yeah. You just wanted to go that day, and so they can get you to pre-book for the year, and then... You know, you get a discount if you give them your bank details because then you can never get out yeah, of it. No, you can't, you can't charge back. Because yeah, good, if you bring in like a good marketing consultant, mm -hmm. they're going to want to be paid month to month because once they start killing it for you, they can triple their prices. Yep, yep. So anyway, there's there's a handful of things from the Netflix book, which I don't, they're, they're businessy, but I'll just tell you that I found this interesting because I was relating it to Charisma on Command, is that he thinks of Netflix, it's this culture of super high performers. Mm. And it's, one of the phrases that they have is uh, adequate performance gets you a generous severance package, which is to say, like, if you're good, like, we like you, but you have to leave. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's got this culture of what they at least claim is radical honesty. And then they give you examples of people publicly uh in a way that they say is kind, you know, but publicly being like, hey, this presentation isn't going well. Like, I think it would do better if you X, Y, or Z, which is something that most people don't do. They pull people aside. They have yeah. these private conversations. They protect egos. Um, but what is interesting to me, and they say it's great for personal growth, but it does seem like, rightly or wrongly, the entity that is most important is Netflix, the corporation. Mm. And like whoever needs to be subbed out of whatever seat in order for this rocket ship of Netflix to persist into the future, they have to go, right? Because like you are serving a higher whole. And if every single person at Netflix right now suddenly became obsolete in their job, they would be replaced with other people and Netflix would persist. And I was trying to track this. I was like, how does this work with Charisma on Command? I'm like, this doesn't work. <laughs> like, I'm unwilling to treat the entity of Charisma on Command at least as more important than me or you. And then also of the people that are around us. You know, like we we have adequate performance in a lot yeah, of different yeah, places. Yeah. We're definitely not a one strike and you're no, out company. No. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but a, a lesson that I've seen again and again when I'm reading any sort of self-help or business book is... We've talked about this in the past. You have to ask what happened to them after they wrote this book. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of examples of books that have been written by people that uh, we talked about the game back in the day. It's the story of a pickup artist. He ends the book with this beautiful rock star. And then his next book that came out several years later, he's depressed and sad. It's like, yeah. well, wait a second. 
if you wound up depressed and sad, then doesn't that throw out the value of this book? Yeah, and just to clarify, <laughs> not just depressed and sad as he's drowning in women, but the guy went from being, in his opinion, the best pickup artist in the world yeah. to having anxiety approaching women. Yes. So something was off in, in book one. So that's the first thing is what happened after the conclusion. After the person wrote the book. True after business books too. We, we won't, there's people who write business books and their business goes bankrupt. Yes. Um, it's true. That was just one example. But so that's the first thing. What happens after the book? And then the second thing is, do I want the thing that this person wants? Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me as I was reading this Netflix book, I was like, this is how you create a company that is completely flexible, shifts with the time. They've had four major business model shifts. I mean, they were sending DVDs in the mail mm -hmm. and then they were doing streaming for other people's content and then their own content. And then, which I didn't realize, they've now gone international in the sense that they're creating content in languages that most of the people at HQ have never even heard, mm. which is like, can you imagine how hard that is from a cultural perspective? And people that may or may not have streaming set up in certain countries, like it's incredibly flexible and innovative what they've done, but uh, it's, it's corporation, f I mean, they might disagree. Yeah, but pe people are expendable, the corporation is mm. not. Um, and I just thought it was interesting. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess I'd rather Charisma on Command die <laughs> than, than uh, the people within it just to suddenly become obsolete. Say and, it ain't and so, to Jar. <laughs> Charisma on Command can't die. Well, what I, is do, I do think making it more applicable to people who don't own businesses, you don't really get priorities. You get one highest priority yeah. and then a number two priority, which comes above everything else, but below that one. Hmm. And that's true of, of anything. Like if your priority is making money, your health will suffer. And if your priority is your family, the amount of money you make over your lifetime will be less than someone whose priority is money if they're just as talented yeah, yeah. as you. And I think you have to accept that. I think people often convince themselves, I have multiple priorities, health, wealth, relationships. Yeah, there's this myth of you can have it all. And I, and I think that you can be happy with where you are in health and mm -hmm. wealth and relationships. But if you're trying to maximize your scorecard, you everything has to have sacrifices. And there is 80-20. You know what I mean? There's a way to be better than average in all those things. But in individual life, this happens all the time. This happens in relationships, too. Are you going to prioritize yourself, your partner, or the relationship? And you each have to decide that. Uh, it's true of friendships. It's And, and I think that uh, the point you're making with Netflix is like, you get to be Netflix when you prioritize the company. Mm -hmm. Some of the things you see that happen in big corporations that takes them down is when they prioritize short-term profit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to prioritize this year's profit. You make decisions that pisses people off, that's bad for the environment, that cuts corners, that doesn't build you up for the future. And uh, I think in everyone's life, if they think about it, if you think that you have multiple priorities, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have a list of priorities and they're ranked. And mm -hmm. something is at the top and it will always come first. And this list can be fluid, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a mistake people make to do that and then to compare themselves to people with different priorities and say, oh my God, I have less money than this person who's been sleeping in the office every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a guy, he's he's my, uh, a friend of a friend's father. I don't know if I said that right. <laughs> he's my friend's dad. And he still to this day, he makes, he makes seven figures a year, will sleep in his office when things get tight with the deal. You know what I mean? That's, he has prioritized wealth. If he has a coworker who prioritized always making it home at 5 p.m. for dinner, mm -hmm. and that coworker is upset that he makes less, it's insanity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, accepting that would make a lot of people like more successful at what they cared about and also happier as they looked around at other people who had different lives. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I look at that, I go, okay, I, I can see the path required to 
be as flexible and innovative as Netflix. I have to fire myself. You know, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not the guy that can do this. Work. Yeah, uh, it's it's maybe having to hurt some people you work with and this mm -hmm. and that. And noticing that and then going, okay, cool. I'm not going to beat myself up for not being Netflix. That mm -hmm. to me is the takeaway. Mm -hmm. It's just being like, cool. I'm happy with Grizzmon Command. Yeah, I'm not going to look at Netflix and be like, wow. I'm a loser. I suck. It's like, no, you have different priorities. Yeah. And it's no shade on their culture. That's the other thing. I was like, this is perfect for some people. Mm -hmm. And and I think the thing that that if I had to zoom out and say from a meta perspective, they do great is they're very clear. Like they don't muddy the waters. They're very like, if this isn't you and you're not going to deliver at this high level, you're out. And also if you deliver at a high level for two years and then you stink for six months, you're out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we it's it's who is most useful to this overarching goal of and i mean they might say bringing entertainment to the world but let's be clear like making the stock value of netflix go up uh in the in the medium and long term that that is that is the goal yeah yeah uh, well i'd like to i mean i don't know if people probably we'd have to do it with like no face or something <laughs> but i'd love to talk to someone who works at netflix at like a medium to high level uh, this just, is this is what the book and just to say like yeah what's it like is it actually yeah. like this is this what it's like in theory but in practicality they're much more gentle to their people yeah. is it actually like this and it's great is it actually like this and people feel that they're ground to the bone a little bit but yeah. i yeah so if anyone's listening knows someone who's middle to high level at netflix mm -hmm. i'd be interested to hear sure. what the reality is yeah there's definitely different personalities at different companies at least through you here through the grapevine but what i've heard is that amazon just like grinds yeah yeah <laughs> grinds well there's people. the infamous right if you get an email from jeff bezos and it's just a question mark you're basically <laughs> one wrong move from being fired is and what people say versus like google i've heard at this point has bloat like there's a lot of hanging out yeah, yeah. there's a lot of nap pods uh, well nobody uses the nap pods is what i hear but like it's it's a metaphor for <laughs> for uh how cushy the ad business has been mm. for them and allowed them to expand and not have people constantly contributing uh, but anyway, I have a bunch of small things this week. I don't know if they're. I don't know. I mean, mine are all non, not really uh, timely, but I was. So I don't know why I just got back onto Tim Ferriss's podcast. I haven't taken a break from it. And he happened to have posted a throwback from 2017 about practical pessimism. Mm. Have we talked about that on the podcast already? I don't know. So practical pessimism, you know, this uh, it's what helped me release anxiety around leaving my job to start my business. And it is, has helped me recently. It helped me stop stressing so much about Chris Bond Command. And it's this idea that the human mind basically hates the unknown. And so when you're going to do something risky, all you think about is like, this could go bad. And then that unknown boogeyman kind of prevents you from taking the risks that you want to take that would change your life. And all practical pessimism is, is just nailing it down being like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and move to Brazil. What could actually go wrong? Okay, the business might fail. Well, what would happen if the business would fail? I would slowly dip into savings. Okay, well, how long could you live off savings before you needed a job? Well, this long. So I would actually have a chance to start another business. What if your savings ran out? Would you starve to death? No, I'd have to go live in my parents' basement. It would be very shameful. I'd have to take a job I didn't enjoy, which is what people do. <laughs> go work for money. And then I'd, get, I'd save up more money. And then I'd try again. I try a third or a fourth time. And so when you write it all out, instead of being this thing where it's like, I'm throwing away this amazing private equity job and I'm scared, you go, I would do that. I would sign up for this worst case scenario. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It's whatever period of time living in Brazil with all my friends and then going to live with my parents and then going back to Brazil again. And you go, okay, well, what's the upside? And then you write out the living your dream specifics. And I don't know, to me, just multiple times in my life, it's made it 
much easier to like not be stressed and chase my dreams because you just heard this again and it made you I just heard it again in the podcast and I wanted to share it on our podcast. I was he, he re-put a video up from like 2007, I think, or 2014 is a 17 minute video on practical pessimism. And I was had been stressing about charisma on command because you have kind of lost interest in doing the breakdowns. I took them over. I realized that they're quite burdensome when you have to do them every single week. And I was like, all right, man, I don't know what's going to happen with this business. I don't know how we're going to produce content for people. And and uh, in a vacuum, that was stressful. I was like, what's going to happen? That's my that's my income. That's the mm-hmm. thing I've built for the last seven years. Stress, 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 vague stress. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, let's do this exercise. We just happened to, you know, fate put this podcast into my hands. And so I did it. I was like, OK, what happens if Charlie and I just never make a breakdown? We have to figure out a new way to make content. Maybe we make it less. Maybe once a month we release a really good video. Like a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, like a react video. But I just went through. I was like, what actually happens? It's like, okay, once a month we'll just commit to making a good video. And then besides that, we'll do other things. Like, okay, and so then you make less money. And I literally went through this. I was like, well, what would I do if I made 20% as much money? Okay, I could leave California, move to Waco, Texas. <laughs> and I, I literally did this. I like yeah. went on to Zillow. I was like, where are places that aren't LA? Because when yeah. you live in LA, there's a sense. That you're not making enough money. Yeah. You know what I mean? That no matter how successful you are, I'm, I'm in a 670 square foot one bedroom apartment. And this is about this 200 podcast, this square feet. It, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so there was, uh, I fell into this thing of I go surfing in Malibu every day or every week and I see these $20 million houses and I was like, that's what I need. That's what I need. That'd be so amazing. I went, okay, well, whatever. I'll just stop surfing completely. Now I don't need the beach and I'll stop looking at major metropolitan areas. Well, dude, this is, the, so this is the social dilemma. I mean, what you just said, I haven't quite figured this out because I often think I would be so much, not so much, the degree to which I see a 20 million or hundred million dollar Malibu home only hurts me Yeah. because let's say that I'm so inspired and I work so hard and I earn it and I get that house. It doesn't make me nearly as happy to have that house as it does frustrated to think that there's something out of my reach that would make me genuinely happy. And so I haven't... We've talked about getting off of the web, all these kinds of things, but knowing that that stuff is out there is not fan. It's it's great for one's work ethic, oftentimes, but really bad for one's emotional experience. Well, this this was the big takeaway I had from listening to this practical pessimism. Mm -hmm. Again, was I went okay? What would I do? Chris McMahon just falls. Just it does ten percent of what it's doing now. Okay, and then I went through the exercise and my answer was like, I've been so tied to this idea of like living on the beach, but if push came to shove, I just move Mm -hmm. to a place that was 1% the cost for a house, you know what I mean? And I get a tiny house in the middle of nowhere and I take my dog and I'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. And then I could try to build something again and get back to California in five years. And so, yeah, the again, for me, just multiple times in my life, it's been so helpful. I thought it would be worth sharing. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Yeah, I, the, the, with the exercise similar to that that I try to do is to genuinely track the times in my life and the and the contributors to lasting happiness. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we've talked, a lot of it comes from within, but there's certainly circumstances that you found more amenable. So like cities that you've lived in, roommates that you've had or had in the yeah, past yeah, yeah. that, that uh, contribute to it. And I, in retrospect, I'm not totally sure, but I would say probably the, like the happiest time that I can recall was when we lived in Brazil the first time. And luckily, from a practical pessimism standpoint, I don't know that I've ever been poorer than yeah. when we lived in Brazil. Yeah, I was Airbnb. I mean, I had this room that was at night. At night, it was 95 degrees. Yeah, <laughs> uh, It had no windows. We had no air conditioning in this home. That was insane. 
Uh, and I took this room because the other rooms cost $550 a month. And this one cost $450, which was a huge savings yeah, for yeah. me. Uh, it was big enough for a queen size bed. And that was it. Yeah. And then I airbnb beat it because I couldn't afford it. And I slept yeah, <laughs> on yeah. the one couch that we had for weeks at a time no, to, I, to make rent. I remember you were sleeping on the couch so you could Airbnb a room. Yeah. You were tutoring people in English because we were living in Brazil while trying to get our business off the ground. Yeah. Do you remember the photo you took? of your negative net worth. Yeah. What was it? What was it? <laughs> it wasn't negative at that point, but if you like no, include if that. you did the math, include oh god, that. yeah, if you did uh, include your debt, it was negative 100,000. But it That's was always it was always negative 100,000 cuz I cuz I went to college and couldn't pay for it. But at any point I had I don't know. Everybody has these stupid stories and I'm not trying to sell you anything, but I had whatever x amount of dollars in the bank account that was nothing. Uh liquidated my 401k. But the point of this story is that I probably was happier than I've been at various many other points, at least 90% of the other like stages of my life. That was so fun and so thrilling. And yeah, I didn't like sleeping on the couch, but I try to remind myself, I was like, for whatever reason, that wasn't such a weight on my happiness. I, yeah, yeah. Now it's inconceivable to me. If you took me out of my nice bed and told me I had to sleep on my couch for a night, I'd be like, how will I, how, how how will I survive? You? How dare you? Uh, and, you know, if you tell me that you're not that, that in, you're not going to be able to get the upgraded apartment that you've got your eye on, be, oh, what will I do? Yeah. You know, or eat eat the nice food. I was I was. But my point to myself, really, more than the audience is just I try to let that shit go because yeah, yeah. I've actually and I realize I'm financially better off than I've ever been, but more financially fearful than I've ever been in my entire life. Yeah, yeah. And there is while you wouldn't give it away, there is this weird paradox of when you've got something to lose or you feel that you've got something to lose, all of a sudden fear creeps into your life and it becomes a default mode of thinking that you don't realize is causing anxiety at a low level throughout your day. Yeah. Well, for me at least, I've found having a big goal is actually so fun and exciting relative to having a, ha trying having to maintain, a big nest egg. <laughs> yeah. Trying to maintain. So yeah. like for fitness, I was I, we, I went to college and my mm -hmm. roommates are calling me Skeletor because I'd like hunch over my laptop to work and he'd see every rib that I had. Mm -hmm. And he's like, dude, we got to go to the gym. This is like not good. And I would go to the gym and I I would just be the skinniest person there, but I would be working out with friends, having fun. And I, I like loved it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And now to go to the gym and just try to like maintain is so unmotivating. Mm -hmm. And similarly at our business, when we were in Brazil, we were making no money, but we had the dream. Yeah. And that dream was so exciting to pursue. You know, I think the reason you were willing to sleep on the couch and tutor wasn't just to buy acai for that day, but it was the sense of adventure as we sure. tried to build this dream life that involved living abroad for as long as we wanted. Which, by the way, I have now. And <laughs> but I, I do think that, that that's a very good point is that it's almost like Friday is the best day of the week, even though you have to go to work because you're mm -hmm. looking forward to the thrill of the weekend. But I and and it's a it's a magical, wonderful stage of life where you truly deeply believe that you can grow and achieve in such a way that things will be better. But I can no longer get back to that idea that there's something that I could earn, a place that I could live, a girlfriend that I could have that could make me lastingly happy. So this whole goal orientation in terms of happiness, I think was a period. It was great, but oh, I, I don't know that I can get back to that. I because agree, but I think most people listening probably are at the point where they have a big goal that they haven't started pursuing yet. Mm -hmm. That would be my guess. Or oh, yeah. A lot and then, then it's and great. I'm saying, I'm saying the pursuit of it is actually more fun than the achieving it in some sense. So yes. like that that's just my attempt to try to motivate people to to do it because it's really fun once you get going, even when you're at your skinniest or your poorest. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I haven't told you this. I literally decided this the other day. Uh, 
my my girlfriend pointed out that I'm very attached to my phone because it's where I do a lot of my work. Yeah. And I think I'm going to try to set it up maybe after we do our next hire to just go give my dog to someone, lock my phone and my laptop away and just go to a house for 48 hours and just not eat, not bring a book and just do a fasted 48 hour silent retreat. Yeah. I feel like it'd be really good to, to remember that I don't need so much stuff to be happy. My guess is it's going to be really hard. It'll and, be challenging. And yeah. then at one point, I'll just look out at the ocean and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. This is bliss. I actually don't know. People say the 48 hours may not be enough. They when they talk really? about the Vipassana retreats, I mean, there are what I've heard is like, look, you can do three days, it's a great thing. But where you hear the breakthroughs, even Tim Ferriss said it's like it's like day five. It's day six mm. is where it happens. Um, and then day six to ten tend to be cruising. But it's really six to ten is cruising. For a lot of people, that's where you get into the it's the back half where you get into the into the <laughs> Do you remember when our friend went to a seven day retreat and yeah. refused to move when his butt hurt and he ended up giving himself like nerve damage? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of throwing me off of the response. There is a there is a sense that you have to listen to your body a little bit. I'd be curious to hear. I mean, he's recovered nerve function. Yeah. So I'd be curious to hear if he wishes he'd done it differently or he's like, no. Part of the process was just part of the process getting the nerve damage. There is no leg. <laughs> there is only the mind. Um, okay, so hard, hard tangents here. What did, I watched an interesting interview with the Kickstarter co-founder. Okay. Super interesting guy. Seems very mission-driven in the way that they run the business. It is, they've like told their investors, like, we're never going to try to make more than X percentage uh, profit. We're not going to do these things. Like, just so you know, when you, when you put your yeah. money in here, do not expect the kind of returns that other techie unicorns give you because we're not going to run the business that way. Yeah, that's all. Which awesome. I thought was really interesting. But uh, one of the, one of the cool side comments he made as he was just reflecting on income inequality and what's going on with capitalism is that this is the meta view that capitalism does best when it's in competition with other forms of running your economy meaning that capitalism was uh better at generating welfare for people when it was pitted against communism because we needed to prove that communism wasn't the way to do it so everyone needed a car and you couldn't leave people out and, and like you had to protect the company man and there was a bunch of things that also contributed in the 70s and 80s but you're saying because you're as a society going to compare yourself to communism so you can't leave people behind a precept of capitalism is that competition breeds better for results. everyone well, within within a system, just even within capitalism, is that two companies making two widgets will get you a better widget. You no, know, here's what I'm saying though: if you're comparing capitalism to communism, mm -hmm. and what you get is one percent of the population is massively wealthy and ninety percent are starving to death, then the populace is going to go, "This sucks." The capitalism loses. Yes, capitalism exactly. doesn't want to lose because it's inherently competitive. So it's in the way taking it is. care of the bottom when it's yes. competing against communism. Yes, and so it was just fascinating to think, "Oh wow, this idea that you want companies competing." because that's going to create better for the consumers. Like you might also want economic systems competing yeah, yeah. because that's going to serve the people within the economic system who are electing which system to do. And as communism has with 1989, the wall comes down, capitalism wins. Then you start seeing like this very predatory style of capitalism that if you imagine there were a really credible communist country out there that were really doing well, You'd go, well, why are we doing it this way when there's this fantastic alternative? Yeah. Uh, so I just thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, maybe the rise of socialism actually isn't a bad thing because capitalism would respond well to that threat in the sense that, and I think it actually has. If I look and I read Ray Dalio and I read a lot of these people that are wealthy, they've, they've really deeply gotten that income inequality screws themselves mm -hmm. because all of a sudden when you have this poor underclass that has nothing to lose, 
it doesn't matter how much money you have. Like gates can only keep them out for so long yeah, and, yeah. and you're going to have to flee the city that you love. Uh, so interestingly this, that I was concerned, oh my gosh, we're going to get, you know, people haven't read their history books. They don't know the communism. Yeah, we're going to be the next Venezuela. We're going to be the we're next thing. For toilet paper. But I was like, great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, great. That that inspires the, the people that, look, I just want the best system. If yeah. I don't care if it's called capitalist or communist. I want it to be best for me and best for the people around me. I have to study what happened in Venezuela because I don't really understand the dangers of communism fully, but I do know that it has had a negative impact on a lot of countries. So I'm not an expert on this. I, I've done a little bit of understanding of the reading of the 20th century, but generally speaking, it's that there's a top-down order to a, to the society, which makes you go, oh, wow, we're going to correct for the ills of capitalism, whereas in a purely capitalist society, you could have one person with all the money, and communist goes, no, I'm going to direct, so you will only get this much stuff, and you only get this much stuff. Now, the problem is twofold. One, that no group of minds is as well-coordinated as a market. Mm. Right. That's one problem. And the second is no group of minds is highly ethical. And yeah. so what they wind up doing, like Russia, is just siphoning all the money into this this tiny group of people with power. Uh, and then, you know, they sell the country off piecemeal and they all of your billionaires are these like five or six guys. Yeah, yeah. So weirdly enough, capitalist is democratic in that each person gets a vote. You know, I'm going to vote with yeah, my yeah. dollar what I want us to do. And communism slash socialism is not the democracy it, pur yeah, it yeah. purports to be. Well, I don't want to beat it to death because I talk about this all the time, but I do think if people don't like mega corporations and want a different world, then the answer is go to your mom and pop shops, stop using Amazon, delete Facebook if you don't like Facebook's ethics. Like, yeah, yeah. To the extent that you're on Facebook posting about how you don't like Facebook's censorship, you are feeding the monster that you don't like. Mm -hmm. um, but I've said it a bunch, so <laughs> we'll just move on from that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that you get the the, the interesting you vote with your dollar not with your mouth I well guess you, that's what I'm and you get a, you get votes you know and, and that those and not everybody has the same amount which is messed up uh you might have to form voting blocks and yeah. you might have to no we talk about this though that there's there's i guess arguments against this but the be the change you want to see in the world if you want everybody to stop feeding the conglomerate monsters because you think they're bad you have to stop feeding the conglomerate monsters yeah one of the so similar vein, I was I watched a school of life video that was called "Why Socrates Hated Democracy," hmm. um, and apparently in one of his dialogues he gave the example of a ship, and it was if you're you know you're taking this voyage around the world, do you have the group of people that know nothing about ships vote on who they want to be the captain based on who is most handsome or charismatic or <laughs> or like gives the best speech, yeah, or do you want a handful of people who know what they're doing steering the ship. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good point. And we've, we've mentioned this before. I still haven't quite figured it out. But the I don't think that democracy is, is, is an unmitigated good because obviously the idea that populism can occur and people will vote without knowing so outside of their own best interest, that they will elect the ship captain that promises them we're going to sail around the world in two days yeah, it's going to yeah. be great and you'll you'll get everything I'll get you, you want. back to your family in a week <laughs> and we're going to get a bucket of gold for everyone yeah and the it's other like, guy's like look this promises. is going to be hard work yeah. <laughs> many of you will die yeah <laughs> like that guy he's out yeah uh, and then you get the guy who crashes because he doesn't know how to actually sail the ship yes and so you're filtering what democracy does is it filters for the preferences of without education democracy is useful it was useless. useless yeah that's is, the, is the big the issue is that i think and I see this a lot. People often complain that the other half of the voting populace is dumb. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, we're all just equally dumb. 
So if you think that the Republicans are dumb or the Democrats are dumb, your party's also dumb. We just about, we're, we're all just a bunch of people that don't really understand the system we're in. Yeah. Casting yeah. votes for how it should be run. <laughs> yeah. And I thought of myself, I was like, who am I? Am I a guy who understands how the boat is run? Meaning I understand what policies and interactions among higher level people are likely to lead to the best outcome. I'm not. Really? I am a moron. Like I, I have read a handful of books that I have no ability to fact check other than by books written by some guy who disagrees with the, with the person who wrote whatever book. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm just a dumb ship person (laughs) on this boat. This is why Trump's pushing to go back to a monarchy. (laughs) First Trump, then Trump Jr., Ivanka next. Yeah. 16 years of Trump. Well, I I guess the ship, and then I was was trying to break the analogy just to see, okay, it does this fall apart at any level. And I guess all that I can come up with is ship it's 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 a more discreet action which is does the ship arrive on time how many people it's easier to measure there's fewer variables even though sailing ship is very difficult measuring the quality of rule is very difficult given that you come in for four years you're inheriting a thing you're inheriting a culture there's an entire organization of people yeah, yeah. so yeah i don't know that anyone really knows how to how to pick who would do this this job well especially given that we can't totally predict what's coming with the future so yeah this this it and then i thought of this whole get out the vote you gotta vote you gotta vote you gotta make your voice heard it's like i'm imagining them saying to this to the people on the boat it's like yell louder yell louder at who you think should be the captain you can't let them stifle your voice it's like Maybe maybe you should read more yeah, yeah. instead of make one, your voice the, the one guy that can read a map is just like, please stop shouting so I can explain to you how the map works. Yeah, this this idea that get out the vote is just such a good thing that you need to make your voice heard because people fought for your ability to do so. It's like, well, restraint might be the better part of valor in this particular scenario. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think of, well, I can't think of a scenario where that's not the case. If you're doing anything, if you're in our business and everyone, the guy that we just hired today is going to make his make sure that his voice is heard at the same degree that you you know and that we're going to go one for one and we're going to get outvoted by three new hires when we've been in this business yeah, for yeah, eight yeah. years is like is that how we want to do things we know that doesn't work with other organizations uh well this so- might not resonate with people who are not americans but i think as an american especially if you're around my age the thing is when you're growing up one i think the country was potentially in a better spot. And two, you're just told it's the best, right? So you're like, we're a democracy. We're capitalist. And, it's the and best. we're number one. <laughs> yeah. The communist countries are poorer than us. They all have less than you. The countries that are authoritarian are terrible. They're all, all the people are mistreated by these corrupt tyrants. What we have is the best. Well, can I'll even intervene here. We don't have the idea that we have a democracy also, if you look at it, is not true. I know. Or that we're a capitalist society is like we have tremendous amounts of public spending. So yeah, yeah, both of those words. But I'm I'm just saying, so that's what you're told, right? Mm-hmm. Then you grow up. I'm 33 now, and it, and you look around and you're like, well, maybe that's not true. <laughs> like mm-hmm. maybe our we're actually on the decline, and maybe we're on the decline because these systems rocketed us to number one, but are no longer working exactly mm-hmm. the way. We, maybe they need to be more democratic. Maybe they need to be less. Maybe they need to be more socialist. Maybe they need to be less. But like it seems like if you look back on the trajectory of the U.S. as a country, it was low and went high in terms of power, wealth, quality of life. I'm not convinced that in my lifetime, it's uh, still doing that. At least if it's either slowing or potentially, I feel like we're at the top of the roller coaster going down, right? And you have China, which is authoritarian, allegedly communist, but also they all row the boat 
together much more so than we do, right? They mm-hmm. kind of are like the society comes first, the community comes first. They're the Netflix of nations. The individual, <laughs> the individual is so unimportant to yeah. us, at least philosophically, that's my understanding. And you see them all kind of like rowing the crew boat together. And then we're all just yelling at each other as the crew boat's on fire. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if that will be our downfall is the fact that we're all raised thinking that democracy and capitalism, the way we do it, is perfect with no changes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That I was told that at seven or nine or whatever it was. And so now I'm 33 and I go, don't these these I don't know why the country's on fire. I don't know why it's being divided. I don't know why we're losing ground economically. But it's certainly not the things that I was told were God growing up. Mm-hmm. It's not because of the way we run ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh seems like that could be our downfall is not adapting. You know, yeah. I feel like maybe we need to adapt because something seems to have changed. Because I do I do look at China. I'm like, there's no chance that we will maintain number one over this highly organized community first machine. When I look at us, as the, Netflix, like, the Netflix goal comes or the Netflix question comes to mind, which is what is your goal? Is your goal to be the number one largest economy in the mm-hmm. world? Is your goal to have the happiest citizens? You know, what what how do you measure? Well, I don't think we're winning in that one. No, sure. we're not. We haven't been. We haven't been to the top for for quite some time. I think we're in the thirties. That's kind of what I'm saying. So yeah, I don't even know what our goal is, but we seem to be losing ground in happiness, education, a bunch of areas. Mm-hmm. So and to tie it in, I do think it's because we've we've talked about the fourth turning, generationally. You mentioned something. I'm glad that I remembered it because you were you were with regard to something else. You said, you know, I'll just get another job because that's what people do. You have to work. I was like, not the not most most people think that that's not the case, at least on the Internet. There's this idea that has that I've probably contributed to in some way in some of my early blog posts. I was like, if you're doing a job that you don't like, that's not what life is about. Like you're supposed there is this entitlement that I have contributed to and participated in to passion and Mm -hmm. fulfillment. And I'm not saying that. Go ahead. Do you want to do a super quick fourth turning? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fourth turning. super, Super quick. Yeah. For those of you who didn't hear the episode where we talked about it, it's a book that says that history occurs in generational shifts, mm-hmm. roughly 20 years. And so there's one turning, two turnings, three turnings, four. It's about 80 years, and then the cycle begins anew. And it occurs because the experience of one generation causes them to parent in a particular way. So the parents of the Great Depression, or the, or the kids who were in the Great Depression, then were very stingy with their kids. And then their kids went on, and they wanted to break out. And so that there's these four generations that occur in predictable patterns. But around the world, they're at different stages of each cycle. Right. And even within t- micro communities, they can be at different stages of an immigrant community comes in. And they're like, they just lived the Great Depression yeah. and their kid is going to go to college and get a very predictable outcome. Do you want to do a quick what each four is? I don't I don't recall them off the top so of my head. I'll, I'll try my best. Then. Yeah. So basically, you start with the Great Depression, right? You have nothing. Mm-hmm. And so you learn to hoard. Mm-hmm. Right. And you and saving is is important. And when your kid comes out, you're like, listen, you're going <laughs> I didn't have food. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to go to college. And you're going to get a job and it's not about liking the job, but you're going to accrue wealth and you're going to move up in society and you're going to have food. Mm-hmm. And I'm meanwhile, I'm busting my ass to work at something I hate to provide you food in the meantime. So that's the mentality. Right. Mm-hmm. And then at some point it shifts and it becomes I did a job that I didn't like to provide for this family. I don't want that. I want a better life for my kids. Right. So I'm going to tell my kids they're going to get everything that, <laughs> that they should pursue their passion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And. And I'm, I don't remember the exact four, but basically at, at some point you get to a generation that grew up hearing that it's not about doing a job that you hate, that that's bad, that maybe your parents feel like they wasted their life to some degree because they didn't live through the Great Depression, but they had that Great Depression mindset. Mm-hmm. So they didn't 
go on the adventures. They didn't eat, pray, love, mm-hmm. but neither did they starve to death. So they view that as missing out. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're born in the Great Depression, you're like, yeah, no kidding. I didn't eat, pray, love, <laughs> but I ate. And that was a huge victory. You know what I mean? Yeah, my yeah. kids ate. Yeah. And that's a huge victory for me. My kids never knew hunger the way I knew it. Yeah. But at some point you get to this generation that goes, I never, I mean, we have a friend who, when she, she doesn't really have a job and when you propose a job to her, she goes, I'm not going to do that. That's not fun. Mm-hmm. I will never do something that's not fun. And it's like, okay. And her uh, parents will make sure she never goes hungry. So she she's, won't need there, to. There's yeah. no fear of starvation. And so you, then you have a society made up of people, not our whole society, by the way, not 100% of it, but that's got, it has people who think that they are deserving of an iPhone, a nice car, never spending a moment doing something that's not fun, that that's just like what the world owes them because of the way they were raised. That's not the most productive society yep. if your goal is to move the country forward. So that's when we say the for, fourth turning, that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like we're at a point now where people don't want to sacrifice to produce necessarily. Mm-hmm. They don't want to do something they don't like for the betterment of their family or the society, which is just not how you <laughs> move forward and achieve and grow and protect your number one slot. Yeah, and there's which nothing- Which is why we think that uh, there's going to be like, a macroeconomic shift globally yeah. where some country that is willing to sacrifice fun in the name of production will surpass us. Yeah, and there's no there's no necessary judgment of any of the stages and it's not that you're wrong that life ought to have passion or that you're wrong that life is about work. It's just that this is the predictable outcome mm-hmm. of this belief. Take make of it what you will. And I see it, we we talked about it earlier with the gurus and and the idea of uh, maximizing. It's also heavily individualist at that level. It's not about what is best for the community. It's about what is best for me to make me happy Mm -hmm. in the short term. There's there's not this long-term view of, okay, I'm going to put in two decades of work, but then I'll get my payback. Well, it's also why you become so mm debt-stricken, which is what's, which is if you care at all about like the wealth of your nation or the value of your dollar, that's, that's the. Dude, my, my, our grandparents' generation saved money. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Like you might not have a good job, but you're taking out credit card debt to get the iPhone 11, or you're taking out a lease on a BMW, even though you make 40 grand a year. And those are just not the decisions that one makes when they survived the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. But they are the decisions that when you make them collectively lead to the next Great Depression. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It is, yeah. So the, I, I, there's nothing beyond that other than when I step back and I look at stuff and I see the, there's very popular, we might be making one soon, we'll let you know, these videos on YouTube, why we're leaving, why I'm leaving California. Ben Shapiro just did his and everybody's got a why I'm leaving California and they all say the same things and I'll be... I'll be weirdly ashamed to make such a cliche video if, <laughs> if it comes time. Yeah. But uh, it's you you are seeing the news play out for the first time, not on the TV, if you are in one of these world cities. Now, that's not to say that Flint, Michigan didn't see the news on play out in their life. Mm-hmm. They did. But I think huge swaths of the American population was not in Iraq, so, you know, could tune in or tune out of the news, right? And increasingly, the news is in these major areas, not just the poor areas, but in and the wealthy areas and, and everywhere. And there are more and more Americans. For cities, less so for rural America. Uh, yeah, less so for rural America. I think it's going to creep to suburban and rural America. But if you're living in Alaska, out in the bush, you have no idea. Or even on a farm. Yeah. Even on a farm where your neighbors are several acres away on either side. Yeah, but it's but it's it's crept in. And so what you see is not just reports that, for instance, homelessness has, has risen, but you are seeing homeless towns 
crop up, you know, of, of all of these full things. And I was watching, I think, Valuetainment sort of talk about the same. I've seen this video too many times, homelessness in California and how it's getting bad uh, or has gotten even worse than it was. But it reminded me so much of the favelas in Brazil when we mm-hmm. lived there. And I was like, wow. And and then I thought, I was like, well, how is life in Brazil different? Because they've hit this weird stable social thing, which has such incredible disparities of wealth. Yeah, yeah. So we lived in the most expensive real estate in South America, which is Leblon, Rio de Janeiro. Now, we didn't live in the nicest place in Leblon. Probably most expensive in Brazil. You think it's most expensive in South America? I'm pretty sure it's in South America. Really? Dude, if you look at... So some of the places that we didn't go... I just assume Argentina is so much wealthier than Brazil. No, a few blocks closer to the beach. I mean, I knew somebody that had a building that was, yeah, yeah, that right. was on the beach. So anyway, we were in the vicinity. We weren't in the nicest place. But no joke, it's, it's a two-minute drive up the hill to the poorest places Mm -hmm. uh and that that poverty is so close to the wealth that weird things that you wouldn't imagine america happening like groups of uh of kids from these favelas will come down onto the beach and just like a wave like run over and snatch everybody's stuff like just run out and then and then back into the hill uh every single window has bars on it which is i guess more common in some cities but like you you don't see it in the nicest areas well even beyond that you get held up at gunpoint and it's a non-event you know yeah I mean? you nobody's like, in, nobody's like oh are you it's like just like oh okay you gave me your stuff right you, like yeah yeah you you owe the the city that one, yes. every once in a while yes um and the and the there's a, a struggle where the police don't necessarily control the favelas particularly well. They're kind mm-hmm. of one by, run by warlords. Mm-hmm. And that's just acceptable. You just go, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, we're you don't gonna, you don't we're not gonna go try there. to fix this. Mm-hmm. Um and weirdly enough, some of the favelas that are run by warlords you can go to because there's the alliance is such that you do not mess with tourists in these particular favelas. Yeah, yeah. Because if you do it messes right, up their it messes trend. up it messes up. Yeah. So there's all these weird things, but uh I don't mean to be all doom and gloom. And Brazil was wonderful. I, I had a great time while I was there, but it's not why we left. It wasn't because of the favelas. Yeah, yeah, it's just I was like, okay, I wonder if there's going to be this new, completely separate uh, experience mm-hmm. of not new, just increase. This has always existed. There's always been poverty, but just larger amounts of people in that extreme poverty, closer than ever. Uh, and what it causes is violence. Yeah. Like Brazil has some of the most violent cities. Uh, if you look at like the top 50 most dangerous cities on the planet, they've got so many of them. Uh, and I don't I don't have anything to say or do or make, but yeah. it's it's unfortunate. And if it's not clear, because I've tried to to be non-judgmental about describing all of this, I think it's bad. <laughs> I don't think that income inequality in the name of distributing things to the capitalists who earned them mm. is ideal for anyone well, for that, anyone and yeah. so there needs to be some kind of way to create programs or or to to effectively redistribute to the poor without i think and this is the problem handouts that are just here you go here you go here well, it's you go. all about incentive structures right you you just want to think what does this system incentivize mm-hmm. and you want to set up a system that incentivizes people to work hard to improve their life to make things better for themselves while also having their fundamental needs met. And so it's, that's not necessarily blank checks. And I don't know what that is, but I think that's a, that's something the U.S. hasn't been great at. It's, well, Andrew it's, Yang says it's blank checks. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm, I'm not an not expert been, on this boat. Sure. I don't know enough about it, but Ben yeah. Shapiro would argue that some of the reason you see such high single motherhood is because it's incentivized. Yeah. I don't know enough about it to know, 
But I think that we do need to think like, what are the downstream effects of this? It's the exact, if people saw the conversation two weeks ago with uh, Chris, the news guy, mm-hmm. he was like, well, who cares? Why are you asking this question? It's like, well, this question is going to lead to this question and this mm-hmm. question and this question. And we're going to have to answer them all at some point. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that's interesting I didn't think about that you've pointed out, we used to say, don't do a job that you hate. And I still think that's true. But now it's don't do a job that you hate. Go pursue something you love that produces something good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's an addendum that is important when people are thinking. It's like, don't start a pyramid scheme. Don't start something that just makes yourself money and gives you a good lifestyle. Make something that gives you a good lifestyle and makes you money and the world is better off because you do it. Yeah, that's interesting. If I think of the hooks in some of these ads, it's not so much uh, you're going to work super hard on a job that you find deeply fulfilling. No. It's and and there are some, but they don't they're not the biggest ones. It's make X thousand dollars, live on a beach and open your laptop in the sunshine for just a few minutes a day. Effortlessly. Yeah. Effortlessly. A lot of these make money things. It's here's how to effortlessly effortlessly make money so that you don't have to really spend your time producing anything. Yeah, it's incredible that and and I've I'm in this generation I experience, but I'm just kind of reflecting on my own implicit thoughts. There's this idea that work is bad, <laughs> you know, that that you or if, that the dream is production agnostic. I think a lot of times when yeah. you're especially when you're in your early twenties, there's not a lot of emphasis on like, even for me, dude, I went to Wall Street. It wasn't no one was saying that it's because MA was good for the world. Mergers and acquisitions are mostly value destructive. Mm-hmm. But people are like, it's a great job. You're gonna learn a lot, you can make a lot of money, very prestigious, great for your career. That's like so I focused. It's so just mm-hmm. like me, me, me. No one was really like, hey, maybe you should do something that the world's better off because you do it. And it'll be fulfilling to you to like watch how that happens. And there's yeah. a handful. There's every, so, every unit school's different. I went to some people go school, and so. become teachers or or guidance counselors mm-hmm. or work with underprivileged. You know, they become social workers. It's but, not the marketing that I see, which makes yeah. me think it's not the most compelling hook, if that makes sense, because these people are just trying to make money. I think the fact that they use that how to make money without doing anything, I think is what sells the best. Yeah. Which is to say, I don't think people, I mean, hopefully this conversation changes some minds. I don't think a lot of people think about how do I make money in a way that makes me happy, but also that if if everyone did this, we would be good. Well, it's considerably harder is the truth. Oh, yeah. It's much harder. I've, I've, I've pushed a number of people recently who have been successful in their businesses. And it's not that they do anything unethical, but I go like, are you doing this because it makes money or are you doing this because this is a good thing and it fills you up? And it's, and it's like, this clearly is like a way to make money and not that everybody should do this, but I do think that once you have uh, a base level of being able to provide for yourself, it's good for you and the world if you go, okay, what if I took a pay cut or put in extra work in order to try to do something that I cared about and that helped in a, in a way that I could go, yeah, that. That's yeah. helping. Speaking of which, go to charitywater.org yeah, yeah, yeah. slash charisma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Donate a good one. So we're actually going to throw up our video on OnlyFans, right? In two weeks. Are we? Is that going live? Two weeks. Okay. Two weeks. Nice. Um, so we'll do it. But it has a call to action. The reason Charlie thought that it has a call to action at the end that's for Charity Water, right? Yes. So I think it's hilarious. Yeah. I love this. So you change the campaign to be simping for charity. Yes. And at the end of the OnlyFans video, you're going to talk about donating to Charity Water. Correct. Which I think is great. So that, yeah, that one's in two weeks. But anyway, do you have anything else before we do questions or that kind of stuff? Uh, well, two things. One, we canceled our Hawaiian venison subscription. You guys win. <laughs> and, no, I wanted to talk about this. So we so we had debates and answered questions and had people write in. Yeah. And a lot of it was unconvincing. But I think there was one particularly compelling argument that we yeah. heard, which was basically 
They were saying this was an ethical way to eat meat because the population was overrun. Someone wrote in and said, that's not, that's not what we do when dog populations are overrun. We spay and neuter them. Yeah. We don't eat them. So I would question whether, again, we talked about priorities. Is the number one priority do what's best for Hawaii's ecosystem? Or is the number one priority profit off of ethical meat? Mm -hmm. And then we're going to try to figure out how to do that in the best way. And yeah. maybe they did pick the absolute best way if your first priority is get ethical meat. I'm really not trying to knock the company. But we found that persuasive. Mm -hmm. So thank you, everyone, for writing in. And we canceled our subscription to our venison thing. So we're back to not eating any mammals at the moment. Yeah. That's all. I just thought the audience would like to know they had an impact. Good job, everybody. Well done. <laughs> uh, and then the second thing, I actually have a couple of things, but I can save them because they're not no, time go sensitive. For it. Go for it. No, there's no, we, we've got time. We haven't talked about Neuralink. Do you want to talk about Neuralink? Yeah. So Elon Musk is fucking crazy and he's going to, uh, cut a quarter sized part of your skull out and replace it with a microchip. And the whole thing is fascinating. I don't know if we do we need to give background or can I just jump into what I think is craziest about it? Go, go jump in. I okay. Mean, so yeah, so that's the Neuralink. If you want to learn more about it, Google it. But the thing I thought was so interesting, uh, there's two things. So one, he's very confident he's going to cure being paralyzed. They just talk. They're like, what are the uses for this? And he's like, well, for sure, no one will be paralyzed anymore. Mm -hmm. He just said it so confidently. Yeah, yeah. And this is the guy that launched a rocket that I really went, wow. Probably in my lifetime, no one will have to suffer paralysis, which is just insane. But then he said, uh, <laughs> he said, we're also going to at some point have the ability to upload your memories and store them as a backup. And in my head, because I'm not Elon Musk, I went, that's cool. So if you have dementia or something, it'll mm -hmm. fix it. Very next sentence, he says, so you'll be able to download them into a new body. And I went, wow, yeah. I was going cure dementia. And this guy just went cure death. Mm. He just went. We'll regularly upload every night when you sleep or whatever, we'll regularly upload your brain. And then God forbid anything happens to the meat sack that is your body. We'll just download it into something else yeah. and you'll continue to live. And then the thing I thought was interesting that I, then I thought about from that is why does it have to be when you die? Well, this is, I was going to say, this which, reminded me of the prestige spoilers. <laughs> well, which is, just, so that's the thing I thought was like, Elon didn't say this, but if I'm uploading my brain and I can buy a functional meat sack to download it into, I can have a hundred of me instantly. You know what I mean? Dude, conspiracy theory. So prestige, fantastic movie. Uh, watch it or skip this part. The Hugh Jackman's character, in order to do a trick, finds Nikolai Tesla, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and he, the, the way that the trick works is that electricity runs through him and then he, he creates a clone. And then the way that he he's the he teleports, he calls it the teleporting man, but essentially the way that the teleportation works is he has to kill one of him every time and it's like he doesn't know which one he is and so that's that's the philosophical question of did he drown in in the when they killed the clone or was he teleported over here yada yada but it's just yeah it's a tesla clone that yeah. you can re-upload in your life i was like oh man dude but how crazy is that 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 this is like a real thing he's talking about in the same way he talked about relanding a rocket ship he's like yeah you're gonna get this silver dollar of your skull removed we're gonna put this thing into your skull they already have a uh a uh, robot with AI that can implant a thousand basically little wires into your brain without hitting a blood vessel. So mm. you don't even bleed from the surgery. He said it's in and out. No, like an you, hour. You go yeah. home the next day and then you now have the ability to never die, to upload your consciousness to whatever hardware or cloud that you that want. That presumes, and I'm not saying that it doesn't, that presumes that consciousness is contained within the brain. Mm-hmm and not distributed throughout the body or some mechanism that we don't yet understand. We're about to find out, dude. That's yeah. what I'm saying. How crazy. Well, here's the thing. When he first said Neuralink, he said, 
it's going to be our attempt to compete with AI. And then people start talking about the singularity and how we'd all communicate instantaneously. This podcast would be unnecessary because everyone in the world would know my thoughts and we become one organism. Yeah, yeah. But now, in addition to that, it's also going to create clones and cure death. And yeah. I just went, God, this guy's doing this in his free time. Like, this isn't even his number one focus. That is wild. It's also going to completely change the, frame, the phrase, if I were you. Because then you're yeah, just yeah. like, give me a Ben body, put my brain in it. I'm going to show him how I would do it. Is what I would do, <laughs> no, it's, it's so crazy. So yeah, I don't really have any takeaways, but I, I was watching Neuralink and I got what I expected, which is we're going to cure paralysis. I went, that's neat. And then it blew my mind way beyond that. So what's fascinating is that science fiction writers have been thinking about these problems for at least 80 to 100 years at this point. They've been, you know, the, the yeah, issue yeah. of clones and the issue of of surpassing death i'll have to read asimov because i i don't i haven't spent enough time thinking about the implications of all of this but yeah he's he's a nut man it's crazy elon's a wild dude what matters more though at the end of the day is it i it, it seems like because we're making all these advancements and he's getting the self-driving car which is a very material thing that exists in the world but it does ultimately seem like okay i built a faster train or i, I we can fly now we have the hyperloop it seems like all of that pales in comparison to affecting consciousness directly. Mm -hmm. VR, other other Neuralink type things, you don't need a Hyperloop if you can put on a convincing experience of Shanghai in a haptic suit. Yeah, yeah. Like travel just becomes, the material world becomes so much less sure. important. Well, also there's philosophers that have argued that our mortality is not bad. Mm -hmm. it's, what, it's what makes life worth living. Mm -hmm. Like to some extent, you reach this thing of like, what's the point? For instance, not that I would, but you get a you you could justify a very purge like society. Where what do you it's mean? Like, I mean, look at video games and see how people play when they know that they get to redo respawn. it. Yeah, and yeah. that's what I'm saying is like you get Grand Theft Auto in real life because everybody's <laughs> who, who cares. But, but also, it's not it's 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 you just get Grand Theft Auto that's more convincing. You don't get it in real life. You just get a bunch of clones Grand Theft Autoing one yes. another. Well, here's the thing: though, to <laughs> each of those clones, though, they're going to go through the experience of dying at least. Maybe maybe yeah. they won't care. I don't know. It, it, this is the thing I'm saying is like there's it sounds amazing, but also some philosopher certainly would argue this is the downfall of human f being fulfilled, which is to say knowing you have somewhere between zero to 100 years left is what makes being human. Well, what Elon rewarding. would say is that we're already in stage five of that of that simulation. We already have done this. This has all occurred before. Yeah, you're you're an eighth generation clone. And what we figured out is, oh, we have to wipe memory wipe or else the whole thing becomes boring, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so like, that is what Elon would say. don't sweat it. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually we'll realize that it's no fun to do Grand Theft Auto and we'll just, you know, and that's, it's, it, what's weird is that it, it has this strange correlation with new age spirituality, this idea that after death, your soul returns to source. I'm not totally certain what that means. Yep. And then it chooses what lessons it wants to have. And so it comes back into life reincarnated, sometimes in excruciating pain or in these awful things, uh, because when it's up in source, it recognizes, oh, I'm just a video game player mm -hmm. and I want to have a variety of experiences. And I found that uncompelling for a while, but then I started, I've been playing this Three Kingdoms game mm -hmm. I told you about. And as I get better and better at the game, I ramp up the challenge mm -hmm. and I eliminate the ability to use save files. So it's only one save through. And I imagine if I could, at some point, what I would do is wipe my own memory mm -hmm. to make myself take it that much more seriously so that the game had such more. And you'd think it was real. You'd think every time yes. you lost a person on the screen that a human died. Or I, and That's then, what you would and do. And then what I would do is I would feel 
every death. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then it would make the, the stakes of the game so much higher. Yeah. Uh, and when I was in it, this is the, because the reason that I didn't initially buy this is because I, you know, from the perspective of the soldier in this video game, you're like, why would you put me on this battlefield? Yeah. It hurts. But then when you zoom out and you're you're looking down at all the ants, you're like, oh, it was just a fun game. Like, yeah. no, don't sweat it too much, guy. Like, <laughs> Well, I'll, go, I'll give you one further, too, because I, I uh, grew up religious, became agnostic, didn't think the world was a simulation, looked into it. Seems to make sense that it very well could be. Mm -hmm. It would also totally justify uh, the Bible or whatever your religious text is, which is mm -hmm. like when you look at science and you're like, the world was created in seven days, but there's the big bang and this and that. It's like, not if it was coded, yeah. not if this is a simulation that some person or entity coded <laughs> and put it. The, it's like kind of like, did they put the fossils there? It's like, well, yeah, yeah. I don't know if this is a simulation that's not wrong. So I'm not saying necessarily that any written text is right, but it it does very nicely add into the context of an omniscient, all-powerful creator if it's a simulation. It's just to say, yeah, for this computer, the coder is all-powerful, mm -hmm. you know? So it's interesting. It basically made it so you can't really scoff at anything. Yes, yes. It, it allows you to zoom out of this world and take all of the inconsistencies within any religious text and just go, dude, this is, this is one video game in a larger world. And... And it also, I think it, it implies a more metaphorical reading of these religious texts because yes. uh, you, you can't totally save the Judeo-Christian God that, that created the one universe and that sent his son here to die for sins that I hadn't yet committed. No, no. You know, it, it, like it, it just does make the seven day thing work, mm -hmm. which I thought I just think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, because all, all of a sudden you don't need a consistent uh, set of rules. It, it, you can you can bend and break the rules, but also that might be even without simulation. This is the the other thing that there seems to be two, at least two sets of rules for the quantum world and the larger world of Newtonian yeah, yeah. mechanics. Anyway, so well, people. I, again, I know nothing about quantum physics, so you got to read. You got to try to read some of these books. I really want to do the double slit experiment test in real life because if it, I need to see it happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we've talked about this in the past, but that that when you measure something it changes the outcome that the potential like that the perhaps conscious awareness of something influences it yeah, yeah and then you go and oh my god like it sounds like books like the secret where your consciousness changes all the stoplights from red to green had a germ of an idea that was true and then just gave it like no you get to think your life into existence but there actually is, there may be some interaction and it sure. seems like there is, at least at the quantum level. And then they bastardize all these words for these texts so that yeah, yeah. people can just wish their way into wealth. Uh, there may be a way in which your consciousness influences material reality without any sort of physical material touching necessary. Well, my my friend who is just objectively very smart and objectively also loves conspiracy theories and is willing to yeah, put yeah. aside his more, more critical thinking if he finds one he likes. So like take both these yeah. simultaneously, not trying his hardest to disprove it, but is very smart, is convinced that quantum physics is easy, most easily explained as some function of binary code, something similar to like proving this is a simulation. It's here, here, and then, yeah. It's just zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. He's like, he's like, that's why I'm convinced it's a simulation. I was like, cool, that's not why I'm convinced it's a simulation, and I'm, I don't know anything enough to prove it or disprove it, but there's certainly people out there who would tell you that the reason that um, the double slit experiment works it's because the reason quantum physics works is because it's some mm -hmm. form of binary code. Would this be cool if like this was the round that we won the game? 
you know, <laughs> like, we just, woohoo. but then that means that we're going to come back in an even harder form. Cause that's what I always do. Like you don't beat the game and be like, beat it on a normal, be like, let's play it on easy. Yep. Like, no, then the next run through, you're like, let's do it on very hard. Yeah. yeah. And so you're going to have, you're not going to have a podcast in the next, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to, you're going to be way, way worse off. What else you got? Uh, one last thing I'm reading. It's the book of joy. I don't know if you ever read it. Yeah, I read it. Uh, so it's, it's basically someone goes and hangs out with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu and ask them about joy because they're both, if you're into enlightenment, which we had a fan question about enlightenment, I want to get your take on, but they're definitely experts in it. And they talk about negative emotions. I want to check my notes on this so I get this thought right. But basically, some people say you have to fully feel your negative emotions, right? To repress them is bad. You have to acknowledge them. Cry as hard as you're going to cry. Then there's philosophies like stoicism, which to some degree, I believe the idea is that you can be free of those negative emotions by being present and by holding certain beliefs. Like Nietzsche says, just amor fate, right? Just love fate. And then to some extent, you think that everything that's happening to you that's bad is actually a gift, mm-hmm. right? And so I was just thinking about how those two work together. The fact that like when something bad happens, you have to weep or feel your jealousy to, to repress it is the the cause of a lot of your problems right Mm -hmm. compared with nothing bad is happening like everything that's happening is happening for you so i i know how i think they work together because i cheated and thought about it before the podcast i'm curious if you have a reaction to those Uh, seemingly disparate beliefs my reaction is that it's that suffering is the denial of reality and that's how they're both united so the loving your fate is to go this is real and it couldn't be any other way. And to and to wish and hope and pray that it was different only compounds my suffering because I'm wishing for something unreal. Mm-hmm. And to experience your emotions is to embrace what is real, which is I am feeling bad and I'm not going to pretend that I don't. So that, And then that seems to be a, a core spiritual precept is that um, illusion is suffering and that truth is peace. Mm. So I, that would that's my reaction. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting too. I'm glad they have them both there because the, they they don't agree. You know, you you think, oh, these are the most enlightened people, but the Dalai Lama is more about experiencing it, but then letting it, just acknowledging it's a thought and letting it go. And Desmond Tutu is more about like really crying hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, when things are sad, when he feels suffering, um, he's much more prone to I think weeping than the Dalai Lama is mm. to like feeling his sadness, but then having it leave his body. So I don't know if there's a right answer, but as I was just trying to think for myself what to do, it seems like the stoic ideal is just that it's like an ideal right mm-hmm. so you want to get to the point where you, how you truly feel is that it's a gift yeah but something happens that makes you really sad or something happens that really pisses you off to pretend that you're already an ideal stoic mm-hmm. and repress it is to your detriment yep. and so what you should do is you want to you you feel that just horrible grief at a death because you don't feel like fate was handing you a blessing when your de- when your kid died. Yeah, uh, you grieve and you hate the world and you feel those feelings. And then separately throughout your life, you work towards nurturing genuine belief that the world is doing this for you, such that especially for more minor things, you just don't have the feeling arise sure. or arises strongly. And so you go through a breakup, but you've got this more stoic thing you've been working on daily with your daily practices because stoicism is kind of like the gym like you go you got to go do it you don't just read a text and then the breakup doesn't actually make you feel like your world is ending what you feel like is you've lost a relationship you cherish sure and so you get a proportionate amount of actual sadness 
and then you allow yourself to feel it. And that's what I was thinking is I think that you you like work every day at the gym of the mind to try to get this stoic ideal because there are people who get suicidal when they, when they at 19 when a boyfriend or girlfriend breaks yeah. up with them. That's that's like to me, you're over feeling almost mm-hmm. and you shouldn't repress it. But like the stoic thing is to get to the point where it's not the end of your existence to have that experience. So that's mm-hmm. how I thought that they went in. It's like on your moment to moment, you experience what you experience. Yeah. But you go to the gym so that you have a more perspective sure on things and then what you feel which you still feel fully is just less and i think that's why the dalai lama has more of a let it go is because he feels it really deeply for two seconds but then truly believes we don't yet know if it was a blessing or a curse Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah he believes it is the and here's this is there's a couple of things that are often described as verbs like love your fate or forgive that person which are not voluntary things that one can do. Mm-hmm. You cannot be grateful. You can, like it happens to you or it doesn't. What mm-hmm. you can do is think about things that you're grateful for, but you cannot be grateful by a voluntary choice. You can yeah. only sort of, like you said, cultivate the soil and be like, okay, will forgiveness blossom? Will my love of my fate blossom? Well, I'm, so, I'm so glad you brought up forgiveness because I think that's a great one. People try to, it's like, oh, you have to forgive you the can't. person. It's what impossible. you can do is you can cultivate empathy, mm-hmm. which is totally different. And you talked about this, we won't rehash it, but mm-hmm. like when you, someone did something bad to you and that person had a history of trauma that kind of explains how things have occurred, when you were able to have empathy for them, it becomes easier to feel forgiveness. But mm-hmm. you don't like do forgiveness. You just genuinely do or don't feel forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I think forgiveness happens, love happens, even empathy happens. What is done is consider their story mm-hmm. or speak to them or listen to and them. It, and I think you can train the ability to take a pause and think about Mm-hmm. that person and i think that's what meditation does is it's like you're feeling your thing and you you recognize that you're feeling it and you take you can take the second before you explode to be like this is another human that's just as human as me why mm-hmm. do i think that they have done this mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying and sometimes you go i they're not a, you know it, you can't even convince your own thoughts but like sure. it, like that's all part of the cultivating and i think critical is to uh, not play beyond the level that you are at to perhaps push that edge to ask yourself the question hey am i ready for forgiveness but to not go no it's time to forgive or it's time to love or it's time for gratitude mm-hmm. like I, I need to step into it now uh no and i think you do it not in the moment is mm-hmm. kind of what i was thinking about why i like that meditation is called a practice and i think to some extent stoicism is called a practice it's yeah. like in that moment you're just you're just in that moment that high emotional moment the the training occurs separately i think and well the training for stoicism is like i think it was seneca who used to walk around in just a robe barefoot Mm -hmm. that's like that's that's an elected i don't believe in free will but (laughs) for for the purposes of this conversation that is an elected choice that one can do at any moment you can take that shoe off and walk around for the rest of the day now you can't choose to love your fate but if you spent all day barefoot in crappy clothes and something bad happens to you loving your fate might occur a bit more easily. Yeah, exactly. So there's like, there's these action plans and then there's outcomes. And I think sometimes the outcome can get confused with the action plan. No, and the exercise isn't necessarily, (laughs) it's kind of like wax on, wax off. Like you might not understand what the point is of sitting outside being Mm -hmm. homeless for a week. But the point is that when you lose your job, your natural reaction isn't that your world is over. Mm -hmm. And so then you don't have to repress anger because you've just gone, this is a bummer. 
I'm not stoked about this, yeah. but I already did the homeless thing for a week. I know it's okay. And I still have my house. I'm just going to go back to my house and figure it out. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's like, they almost don't seem related at first, but that's why the exercises are what they are. The Stoics are crazy, man. So I've, I've, the, one of the coolest things about them is that some of the, not quite, the two of the most famous Stoics are Marcus Aurelius, mm -hmm. the most powerful man, maybe like contender for most powerful in history mm -hmm. and Epictetus who was born a slave mm -hmm. and it's, and like equally available to both of them. They both practiced it. They both came to similar conclusions and it's like, okay, does your life fit within the bands <laughs> of either of these guys? Because it, you, that if, if so, this is, this is for you. Available for you. Yeah. That's yeah. All. I never thought about that. That's uh, awesome. And so it's not just a philosophy that is only for academics or only yeah. for like, it, it has clearly such a broad, uh, broad, broad, scope of human experience that that it can be applicable and helpful to and you know it's cool they were both obviously so well solving for um themselves to some extent but like it helped the slave to accept that he could still have a good life mm -hmm. and help marcus aurelius be one of the best leaders mm -hmm. so you know what i'm saying like an emperor might be happy no matter well, what well so he also did uh, his story as he got out of it he was very smart he became a tutor like he he did oh no but i'm just sorry what i'm saying is like the the appeal of stoicism is like not only is it going to make your own life better but like emperor like power corrupts mm -hmm. just straight up being an emperor it's tough to be moral and marcus aurelius is largely considered one of the best leaders in history you know what i mean so it's cool because it's a philosophy that makes you it's good for you and good for the world i mm -hmm. guess to some degree yeah yeah you know what i mean so he i was looking this up because i wanted to see one of the most interesting things and i was thinking of this from the perspective of uh intersexual dynamics which is what happens when you give a man complete and total power, when you tell him that he's God? Well, this has happened mm -hmm. throughout human history. Yeah. Uh, and even beyond the pop stars of today that have some accountability, there have been- Pharaohs, dude. Pharaohs and uh, Chinese emperors, and I believe the Incans when they came here treated their, their king as a god. And what you see, I don't know how many, I was trying to get the exact number, but it's very common that when- Men are told that they're gods. The way that they set up their life, which is fascinating, this is a different topic, is they tend to have one queen, one wife, who is uh, there for an extended period of time. Sometimes they divorce, but like she's around. And then anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 <laughs> virgin concubines guarded by eunuchs, <laughs> men without penises. Uh, and so it's just interesting to like, okay, that's what complete power does. But Marcus Aurelius is a notable exception. Mm -hmm. Now, not every Roman emperor did this or had anything, but... It is hilariously cross-cultural, though, that when you tell a guy he's God and he can do anything, they yeah. tend to set that up, yeah. whether they're in Egypt or China so, or South America. So the first thing is that I do think he may have had a mistress, but he also had a wife whom he was devoted to um, and didn't, as far as I could tell, was not a philanderer anywhere near the level of that. So I thought that that was interesting from a, a personal control also, I, decision wrong. I think you also valued human life, right? In, yeah, a, in yeah. a way that potentially other people when you're told you're God seem to be more flippant with like lower class lives. Yes, he seemed to care. And I don't know who was excluded from his circle if there was an underclass. Surely of someone was. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm yeah. definitely not saying this guy's perfect. Yeah, if the barbarians didn't count or whatever, but... Uh, but no, I was just thinking, okay, so what do men do? Does it make them happy if you were to talk to these emperors? But it certainly, it seems like there's a large male instinct to, uh, which I, I actually, the, the part that I thought was interesting is that there's still a queen oftentimes. Mm. Like despite the fact that 
there's a thousand young, beautiful virgins who may or may not be moved in and out and younger ones are coming in that these ultra powerful men still have one queen. Um, and I don't, you know, I'd have to look greater. I don't want to talk out of, out of hand here, but it seems like that queen has power and control mm -hmm. over this person. Like if she doesn't like something, she might be the one person well, that gets to influence him. Kill, other people can die because the queen doesn't like you. The yes. queen can get the king to kill people for you, for sure. Yes, and might even be able to get, and I'd have to look more deeply at some of these things. I think this would be a really interesting analysis. Like yeah. when you give a guy absolute power, does he naturally pick a queen slash wife and cede some of that power to her? Mm. Does she then have control over him, which is unrelated to access to sex or fertility because he has that in total abundance. Yeah, yeah. And if so, I mean, I, I think that's fascinating if that's the case because- yeah. I don't know. I feel like my view of that stuff is so dramatized from mm -hmm. movies. I'd really have to- Yeah, get some, it'd be like, tough. I'd to have to get some source text. You yeah. Know I mean, I have to like try to find some translations of things written that day mm -hmm. because I'm 100% positive I can't rely on the movie portrayal. You know yeah. what I mean? The reason I ask this is because uh, we may, I, I'll, I'll reach out to him. We've done some red pill- conversations on here it seems like people have been interested in it and i wanted to read the book of i've read it once of the guy who sort of founded the red pill have him on converse with him and one of his primary ideas is that women have this hypergamous urge which is that there's two things they want in men oftentimes you don't find them in the same men which is the alpha beta split according to him alpha is this genetic potential strong leader top in many hierarchies and then beta is the provider will take care of you. And while ideally women would find both of those qualities in a single person, increasingly they're not. So mm -hmm. they have a dual mating strategy, which is sleep with alpha, date, marry beta. Sometimes cuckoldry can occur. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this dual mating strategy is, is, is foundational to the red pill. But I was thinking of my own life and I'm going, well, I kind of have a dual mating strategy. If you, if you gave me ultimate power, mm -hmm. the people that I would sleep have with. a one night stand with yes and and the people that i would date are not exactly the same mm -hmm. and so i was just i was just playing this out in my in my head being what do i if i do have this dual mating strategy how does it occur what what defines it in men how might it be different from women so i i haven't completely gotten to the yeah, bottom of this but uh i see it i see the way that me and my friends uh, when we were living in Las Vegas and having more casual <laughs> encounters, the criteria for those were not the same as the criteria for long-term girlfriend. No, not even close. Um, and yeah, so I was like, maybe men are hypergamous too. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, if we have a conversation with him, we can bring that up. It's interesting. It's interesting. The other thing I think is interesting is um, you're the king, you have unlimited power, you have a thousand concubines. Ostensibly, they mean nothing to you, right? They like literally just come and have mm -hmm. sex and then leave. But you still make sure they're guarded by eunuchs. Yeah. You're like weirdly <laughs> possessive and jealous of your 997th escort, basically. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that all were guarded by eunuchs, but I do, it, it, the, the trend seems to be if you sleep with any of these concubines, that's You sleep like, with the king's concubine, you're probably gonna you die. You are in trouble. Which is just interesting, because you would think I'm God. Yeah. These are just humans. This is just one human person. Like, yeah. Why do I need to be so protective or covetous? Well, of course you're there? not God, right? That's the other thing. You're just some dude that you has been you born into- You the pharaohs thought that they were gods? They think that they're God, but their entire neurochemistry yeah, 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 and yeah, biology yeah. No, it's still, is still just- still biologically a, human. Yeah. But I'm saying, I do think they genuinely believed they were 
uh, deities. Yes, right? yes, shocked, yes. shocked to find out that they're just someone in a better hat. Mm -hmm. And so it's just interesting that you're still like, yeah. By the way, I'm gonna cut your penis off before you even look at her. Yeah, you know what I mean. I don't have a takeaway, but that's just funny. To Somebody think needs about. to do this analysis in in a, in a deeper level so I can read the book and yeah. not have to do the primary Dude, this research. Is the failure of history class. This stuff is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of stuff they should teach in uh, in high schools. Well, the question that was never asked in high school is what makes a good life? And that was why I signed up for philosophy in yeah. college. It was never asked. It was like, these are the dates, these are the things. But you've got thousands of years of history, self-reported, you know, what worked, what didn't work, who was happy, who had, who was the Dan Bilzerian of 2000 BC? Who, yeah, what who empire had, <laughs> was miserable? You yes. know, what emperor was miserable? Um, and uh, what slave was happy? Yeah, there's mm -hmm. tons of, I mean, you could be, it could be so fascinating, but. It's not. Anything else? No, let's do questions. Questions. I just don't get the necessity of enlightenment and why one would need to have that as a goal. It doesn't feel compelling to me, although I want to emotionally grow and understand the world better. Am I missing something? Why would one have enlightenment as a goal? Do you want to go? Do you want me to go? I think this is mostly targeted at you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I think enlightenment, I don't have enlightenment as a goal. I think I've never experienced it, so I'm only going to describe what I've heard other people say and what I can. here's what I can relate to. Uh, at some point, you realize that life is full of suffering. And I actually didn't realize this until I was probably 28 years old. What I thought life was full of up until I was 28 was challenges and successes. And it was just a series of like succeeding. But if you step back from that game, you're like, wow, these successes are short-lived, fleeting, and take me back if I'm really aware of how I feel into the state of needing more, needing more, needing more. Um, and that needing more is really fun. Like we described in Brazil early, you know, it's like super fun to have a goal. And then you realize that nothing satiates for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Hedonic adaptation. Yes. And it hits hard at some point. So if it hasn't hit, there's no need to make it hit. Enjoy, mm -hmm. enjoy the, the, the pursuit and the goal. It's, it's all, I would not, you could not have convinced me to pursue enlightenment at 19. No, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't. So unless it calls to you. Yes. I think what happens is at some point, what calls to you is freedom from the cycle of getting what I want, being happy, being disappointed, starting it. You want to break that. Well, I also think to some extent you realize that your perfectionism is driven by anxiety, mm -hmm. that your fuel, your motivation to work so hard is driven by not feeling enough, not feeling worthy of love, not feeling like you're someone that people should want to be with on your own. So you, yeah. so you accumulate success to feel good about yourself. Mm -hmm. So you start to recognize all these virtues Maybe the fuel's a little bit poisonous. Yeah. And if you haven't recognized that, be aware that it's on the horizon, but don't force it. Yeah. If you think that's crazy and your perfectionism's driven by virtue and yeah. are happy, then life life has a way of, of teaching you. And yeah. this is the interesting thing is that this is a is a very normal human progression when the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are taken care of. So what you start to want is freedom from that cycle. What you want is you start to want freedom from suffering and you start to prize as opposed to thrill, excitement, getting what I want, peace. Equanimity. Yes, equanimity and peace and an ability to stop trying to control the world, to allow it to happen and to be cool with it. Like to like to to stop fighting so hard. And what I would say enlightenment is, which I've not experienced, is a realization that there never was a fight. You always were the entire universe in the same way that 
like you could imagine it would be strife if my left hand and my right hand thought they were in conflict and my left hand kept trying to pick up all the food that my right hand and there was fighting and it was like yeah, no. you're just eating with a fork and knife uh, yeah. but they think that they're battling you know what <laughs> yeah. i mean the knife and fork are clanging and exactly like they're at war for and the it's food like, oh wow it's like it was all me like the food was going in it was it was i didn't need to do that in the first place um and that what happens when one is enlightened is one gets a deep understanding that the self is not a separate thing from the universe, that death is an illusion. And why is death an illusion? Because this hand was never a separate thing. And so if this, like, if it didn't get the piece of meal, that felt like it was starving. It's like, no, you're not starving. You're the whole body. Well, the same thing is like, I disintegrate, but the whole world persists. And that is still me in a way that I can't yet totally relate to. Um, so then you get allegedly unlocked from the cycle of suffering and you can persist feeling simultaneously like this hand and like the whole body or to take the analogy you get to be yourself but also the universe and sort of go back and forth and you get to enjoy that so i'm not aimed at enlightenment personally i am aimed at awareness of suffering in my own life and that's it honestly just just awareness of it is is kind of and not even just suffering awareness of everything well and i think a peace right you're not aimed at a peace i am i'll say like my the reason i'm reading the book of joy is yeah, for, yeah. for the ability to uh grieve when things are lost and at the same time to uh return to a sense that i'm gonna be okay sure I think there's a ton of paradoxes and that aiming at enlightenment slash peace takes you further. So I'm trying to just be aware, <laughs> which is also the paradox yeah, of like me trying, trying to, give, to be. I'm not trying to give the right answer. I'm yeah. just saying that, that that's personally for me, like when I read the book of joy, it's not because I think that the Dalai Lama is like superior to me in some scorecard of spirituality. It's because I think that potentially he has a more pleasant existence yeah. while simultaneously doing more good for the world. Oh yeah. God, my YouTube channel, 1 million, 100 million views in a year. And he's like, yeah. I'm the Dalai Lama. I inspire nations. Yeah, and you want to feel good. And then there's concrete ha things that happen. I'll, I'll elaborate some of them that I've started to see is that, again, you don't consider it suffering, but there are ways that you would like other people to behave. And you might not even recognize it as such, but when you criticize someone, when in your head you go, oh my God, that person is so dumb or this yeah, yeah. or that can or what I give the example which I sure. think people, so like charlie had a girlfriend i didn't like somehow that caused so many negative emotions in me mm -hmm. and then at the end of the day they break up charlie and i are best friends throughout it and i would have been so much better off i won't call it if i were enlightened but just if i had the mindset of like with love guiding mm -hmm. charlie and then at the same time like letting whatever will be will be mm -hmm. and we would have arrived at almost the exact same point because i had no point was i steering the ship i had no mm -hmm. control over the rudder but without me being like ah. Uh, Charlie. So I think, yeah, it's like that's the goal of it. It's just to be able to to have less stress, frustration, yeah. anger, sadness at these things that are totally out of your control and instead just come from love. Might have even been more persuasive if I came from love. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. And what you realize is that all the things that society, all the best things that movies and society and your family has told you are in your, you know, it is better to give than to receive like it, you know, be kind to other people. This isn't just a social Greece. Mm -hmm. This is for your yeah, benefit. <laughs> the Book of Joy has so much cliche advice, yeah. but when you just hear it in, I don't even think it's them, but you just hear it in voices that are meant to be them. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, duh. Yeah, like yeah. that's what that's what this is. That's means, even though I've heard it a hundred times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what enlightenment is? It's it's. I think there's a lot of ways to look at it, and it's got a lot of facets. But one of the big ones is you stop seeing yourself as someone that needs to control things 
including other people, your own feelings, the world makes shit happen. And you start accepting, like in Ben's personal example. And what that does is it simultaneously is the paradox. It makes him more influential over me because I feel accepted. And now I can, instead of arguing in my head with Ben about why this is a good relationship, he goes, no, it's great. And I go, yeah. are you sure? Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, even I had, so simultaneously, I had a relationship that had its ups and downs at that moment. If I had approached my own relationship, I would not have had any negative feeling about the person I was dating like as an individual. I've been like, mm-hmm. I love you. And given your life, you're perfect as you are. And I don't think we're a good match, mm-hmm. it, you know, because I would I would have been more. Uh, You're not trying to change. Exactly. And, and instead, what I was trying to do was like simultaneously idolize my girlfriend mm-hmm. and also uh, make her behavior change. Instead mm-hmm. of just being like, I see you as you are. I love you as you are. And given you are as you are. You're not right for me, but you're totally right for the universe. Yeah. And then like it would have been, I would have been happier, made the right call of ending the relationship sooner. So that's that's like the these like practical outflows yeah. of not pursuing enlightenment, but studying enlightenment. I'd yeah. Say. And so and in, in some, and there's a hundred different ways that you can describe it, but it, yeah, it's the ability to it's they call it enlightenment and awakening because you're you're not in the dream. You see the truth. Mm. And the truth is, as Ben has said, that that person was perfect that the relationship that he was fighting was perfect, that his frustration with the relationship was, per- you know, and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, like <laughs> I can relax. And instead of, uh, again, another analogy is you're sitting in this movie theater, you're watching a movie and it's taken a turn and you're going, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And you're freaking out. And then you just realize, oh, these are just happening. Yeah. You know, it's like but, this is project and I just need to sit back and watch. And maybe it's sad, maybe it's angry, but like. But one thing, I think this is proof that I'm not enlightened. One thing that I also do like about it is I do think you get better results, which is to say my fear when I first heard of enlightenment is like, well, she's perfect and I'm perfect and everything's perfect. Aren't I just going to stay in this relationship that yeah. involves whatever, you know, not seeing my friends or getting in fights or fi- whatever it is. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. you she's perfect and you're perfect and you'll be able to with no malice in your heart, separate sooner. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, for me, where because I was at this point too, where I was just like, I don't want to be the Dalai Lama, sit on a mountain. Mm-hmm. I want to be LeBron James, you know? Dan Bilzerian. Um, <laughs> and it's it's like, no, this is actually better for your, for your, even if you get back to all you care about is your body and you're not the universe. Yeah. I do think it's also better for you just in the capsule of your body. Sure. Uh, so yeah, that's my best guess. But all of that to say, I'm not enlightened. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever experienced enlightenment. Uh, and so I, I don't even know that I'm aimed at it right now. How much movement do you think you've made from like, uh, let's say like the most, uh, n- no negative, but just like the most base thing would be like mostly trying to pursue sex, pursue money, pursue food versus the most high end would be like uh, celibate, yeah, yeah. self-sustained. Or maybe not. Who knows what it would be? Well, that's uh, that, just, that's my image that's of it. That's what the Dalai Lama yeah. does. Yeah. You know what I mean? He doesn't have a concubine. He doesn't have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> we'll lose it. <laughs> it reminds me. I'm sorry. I just have to tell the people this. My brother's playing Apex Legends. He gets on there ah. with two 11-year-olds. And you're on a team of three in Apex Legends. And he goes, he, you know, he kills some guys, he revives them because they're on his team and he gets downed, which means you need your team to help you. And because they're 11 and they're jerks, they won't help him up and they start, you know, swearing at him. And one of the things that goes, you probably don't even have a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you got me. It's like, oh, God. 
God. The biggest insult. That you can have at 11. You yeah. can have at 11. A girl won't even like you. You don't even have a girlfriend. Yeah. And then you're playing You're playing with some 55-year-old guy that's yeah. getting through a second divorce. Yeah. And he's like, you have a girlfriend? You're a loser. <laughs> but um, so, yeah. So how far have I come? Um, no, I'm just curious. Like, do you feel like you're a massive distance away from when you started? Or do you feel like not you're Not a like massive. I, things that have changed. I am more able... And not able, it happens. I like sometimes I when I force it, it doesn't happen. Like forgiveness, but um, I'm more able, not all the time. I don't even know if it's half the time to be less judgmental of things that I see people doing. They think are dumb, and I just go like, I tr I truly have started to embrace like there is no free will. Like mm -hmm. what else could they fucking do? Easiest with your family or with strangers? With strangers. Yeah. That's what I thought. But I with strangers. Yes. It's way easier with strangers. And then is and I've had moments of the people closer to me. So like when Aaron Hernandez commits a murder and yeah. they do a brain scan <laughs> yeah, on him yeah. and they find out he had so many concussions. Yeah. Anyone with his brain would have committed a murder. That's much more easy for you to just be like, not not an evil soul. The news, the the Antifa or white supremacists or whatever it is, it's easier for me to look at them and go, these aren't monsters. And I don't have to trick myself into thinking that it just it just is evident just go like this is a result of that person plus their iq yep. their genetic material their upbringing like that becomes more self-evident to me did you know stoics are they have the same i think uh inconsistency that i do they want they view everyone else as a dog tied to a cart mm. but then try to elect and i think they even say this like pretend they have free pretend will because yeah. it leads to the best decisions but they actually think they're a dog tied to a cart too yeah, yeah yeah and that's why their thing is like the obstacles the way if you're tied to a cart and you're a dog like run with it because mm -hmm. if you, it's going no matter what so if you mm. pull against it, it's just to your detriment oh, interesting but i thought it was interesting when i was reading it. i was like oh these guys came to the same conclusion i did which is like gun to your head none of us have free will but i'm gonna pretend i do yeah yeah interesting yeah um but yeah and then i would say that the other the relationships my family have, have changed a lot I, I call my mom and dad way more talk to them more and more uh not that i ever lied to them but i'm more able to say nice things to them than i was i was always able to, to have difficult conversations <laughs> i was always able to be disagreeable yeah. so yeah um it's no it's it's made concrete lasting changes but they are if there's a zero yard line when i started probably three four years ago and a hundred yard line my guess is that i am at the 20. but you feel like at being at the 20 noticeable difference in your day-to-day -day. yes and i think other people can not in not every day not every day but no no like noticeable differences in like i said my my family yeah uh strangers and non-judgmentalness is easier i think it's fair to say like your your parents would say that it's uh it's not just something it experiences in your head like they probably have yeah. seen it and yeah, felt yeah, yeah, it yeah. and feel the relationship <laughs> yep. improvements yep and it's not night and it's well it's not nine day it's zero to 20 is what I would yeah. say, but but uh, it was a tough twenty. Yeah. What's funny is it might, it might be night and day, but then like when you get to a hundred, it does it just doesn't feel like it. If that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Like if you just stopped today and mm -hmm. then interviewed your dad, he might be like, "It's been amazing." He would say it's different. I think I don't know what he would say. You'd have to ask him. He can come on the podcast sometime. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. All right, what else we got? Next is, how are we supposed to change deep-rooted opinions when our ability to change anything about ourselves is so weak? How can we clearly think when our mind is uncontrollable when it comes to things like our biases and emotions? So my question is, should we stop fighting for our beliefs and accept that we are a bit ignorant like Plato, or should we keep fighting for them and risk fighting for something that is actually quote-unquote bad? Uh, so I think, like, how do you change your mind? How do you change your beliefs? It's just uh, experiences that contradict them. So one of the 
most important things that I did, which formed like foundational meta beliefs about life was when I went abroad when I was 18 or 19 years old. I was old. just gonna say that. And that, I didn't know that I had these beliefs, but like, here's the meta belief. Things that everybody has told you are true. Like that was the meta belief. And so if everybody said something like that was slotted into the true category. Yeah. And then I went abroad and they all told me different things. And I was like, holy cow, that didn't just change my view of America. That changed my entire epistemology of how I decide what is true. Mm -hmm. So experiences, one, I think traveling, uh, and I don't mean vacationing. I mean to the degree that you can mix and live and learn the language. And I learned salsa dancing. Can, can I give a <laughs> yeah. concrete? I, I studied abroad and I did it the party way. I went to a city in Belgium and then I traveled to like Rome and Ireland and all this stuff. Charlie went to Costa Rica and didn't even go to the beautiful beach towns that surfers go to. You went to a, a regular city College, yeah. in a different country that had a different level of poverty and different priorities. And I think that was so much more impactful to how you saw the world because you were walking around. No one else really spoke English, right? You had to learn Spanish. You were living with a family there and you were in the culture. Mm -hmm. I was bouncing from place to place with 10 other Americans. And so I think I insulated myself from the cultural lessons. And then I only learned them later when I went abroad in different ways. Um, you, because you were in the culture, you got to experience those learnings. Yep. Um, what's also good to know is the, the ways in which you identify. So you're, you know, easy as Republican or Democratic, conservative or liberal and consume the best advocates for opposing sides. Mm. So, uh, you know, if you think uh, American interventionism is great and the word like read some Noam Chomsky, <laughs> like that's that's fantastic. If you trust the news, read Manufactured Consent by Noam Chomsky. Uh if you are super liberal, I don't even know, but watch Thomas Sowell on YouTube uh, or read Thomas Sowell uh, to talk about uh, economics. If you did I, mean, I can tell you the ones with regards to Republican and Democrat who to look at, but the same idea but applies. A, a smart person, though. Don't a try smart find, person. Don't try to find someone who thinks the opposite of you who's an idiot so yeah. that you can watch and be like, oh, I'm so right. Like, find mm -hmm. the person who has the points that make you go, I don't have a good comeback for that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that will force you to like, ping pong in your beliefs a lot. Uh, and then what I would say is, and, and the last is similar to this, is that Amazon has the, you know, the recommended books. Uh, avoid that. <laughs> Everybody who has read The 4-Hour Workweek has read The 80-20 Principle or whatever comes in that thing. So what you need to find a way to do is to have radically different experiences that will open up entire realms of ways of seeing the world, knowledge, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and this is a hard one. And I'm always so excited when I like tap into a new one. But sometimes this is books that are out of print, old paperbacks, you're classics. Find some duds too. Yeah, you're going to read a lot of crap. Uh, you're going to read a lot, a lot of crap. But when you do get a new good one, like, um, you know, when I, and sometimes there's these crossovers. So like Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle was self-help, but spiritual. And that that there's often these bridges out there. Well, and will. I'll say you liked The New World. I liked was, uh, A New Earth. A New, Earth. A New Earth, yeah. Which is not his most recommended. Correct. Most recommended is Power Up Now. Correct. So in any event, um, that that's a, a start of how, to, of how to get different things. Don't don't just sit there and change your mind. I mean, you have to be exposed to compelling opposite viewpoints. Yeah. And then, then you'll have, what's cool is at the end of it, you will have a set of opinions that no one else on the planet Earth shares as opposed to 
if you just read the recommended books and get locked into a CNN or a Fox News, I will be able to tell you everything you think about every social issue. I'll be able to predict your religion. No, it's so sad. You, you <laughs> You'll become someone, a mouthpiece for an ideology. Yeah, you just ask someone what they think about one opinion, about one controversial thing. And then when they give their answer, you have such an incredibly accurate ability to tell them what they think about every other issue, mm -hmm. which is just... And why? Not what you want to... Yeah. yeah. It's not what you want to be, I think, as an yes. individual. Well, what it indicates is that... Uh, your opinions have not gone through any testing. Someone else has taken that job for you and then just told you essentially what to think. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, it's good to it's good to have yeah. your own experience influence the things that you espouse. The last thing I would say is exercises. So, for instance, getting me to quit my job, I had to do the practical pessimism exercise. I had to do the writing. You know what I mean? Cognitive behavior therapy. You have to do the writing. I think there are um, these these things that are highly recommended that are, have been proved to be successful for other people, and they involve like spending the mental energy and taking sacred time to, to actually do them. And mm -hmm. I think what a lot of people will do is maybe watch a YouTube video on stoicism but not do the stoic exercise. Watch a YouTube video about the four-hour work week but not realize that every chapter comes with a daily action. Yeah. And uh, I'll do those. Yeah. People skip that stuff. How many books do you read where it's got an end of the chapter thing to do? And I'm guilty of this as well. And then you skip it. That's where the power is, though. Yeah. That's right. Dude, Charisma University is better than our YouTube channel because every single day comes with a, a thing to do that will make you more charismatic. And if you just watched Charisma University in a day skip it. and did no action, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you would get very, very little from it. And so I think when in terms of changing your beliefs, your belief systems, your mental things, uh, how much you suffer or your anger issues, it all comes down to, I think in addition to everything you said, finding the exercises and doing them. Mm -hmm. Cool. What else? <clears throat> Next is, I agree real trauma exists and may be more common than we admit, but I find the idea that trauma is purely subjective a little hard to accept. On one hand, I totally see why that could be the case, but on the other, could we also potentially be letting people get trapped by a trauma that wasn't conceptualized that way? Maybe the word trauma needs to be defined here. But I think leaving the door open for a sexual assault level trauma to be psychologically the same as getting called names during school, for example, which most of us did, may actually do more harm than good to those people by telling them to see this as a trauma and to process it as a trauma. What do you guys think about this? Mm -hmm. So this is a huge concern of mine. And this is I often when I talk to people about this and I've talked about my experience, I go like, look, you can't let me do this. If we do this, you're, you're just going to make me a bitch <laughs> like <laughs> I've worked so hard and I haven't even worked hard because I don't need to be a bitch because I'm not a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. like, I just am tough. <laughs> I'm just tough. And like, I'm sorry that other people had problems with these things <laughs> and everybody has hardships. And so I get it. Like, I feel this way. So what I will try to do is tell you what has been told to me that I am. Uh, this is another thing to change your belief. I'm trying this idea on like I, I, it doesn't totally fit, but I'm trying this new perspective on, which is. Um, everything you said actually isn't so for trauma to be subjective does not mean that we need to suggest or reinforce trauma in other people. It means that we allow them and we create a, we create a scenario in which they are heard and experienced. And, but also like, you know, if they say that if, if they can honestly say, look, th this didn't have this kind of an impact on me, no therapist in the world would insist that you you always elect to come to therapy. There's no there's not this court ordered thing unless you've committed a crime. Yeah, I, I don't think you ever want to say, oh, you should be traumatized by that. No, no. Um, but what has been suggested to me that I think is often useful is that, look, 
let's let's start with the premise, which you may or may not agree with, that our society is in its infant stages when it's understanding human psychology and what drives people. And let's assume, for the sake of this conversation, that as a result of that, the water in which you exist has completely minimized some of the hard things in human life. And it's been doing that for 100,000 years. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not a new thing. Uh, such that it keeps you alive, it keeps you feeding yourself, it keeps you a functioning member of society, but it also keeps you highly anxious, which wasn't a problem for the last 10,000 years because you needed food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but now we're at a new era where in addition to being well-fed, functioning member of society, you could also be deeply happy and at peace. Given that, it is possible that the names that you were called when you were little created patterns of thinking and behavior that live in you today. And in the same way, for instance, like the, the, the example that I always use is think of the accent that you have. I haven't relearned English <laughs> ever, yet I speak, and my sister even more so, like, like I'm from Philadelphia. I moved out of Philadelphia 13 or 15 years ago, mm-hmm. but I haven't shook my accent because I grew up in that. Mm-hmm. So think, how does that, you have an accent when it comes to how you are intimate with other people, with what success means to you, with what you do when someone is cruel to you. And those things were put into this tiny little brain as fixed quantities when you were very little. Mm. And if you want to adjust the accent on those or even come to realize that it's not a fundamental truth of the universe that everybody speaks with a Philadelphia accent or has issues with intimacy, is really, really tough driven like Elon Musk, whatever, gets angry very quickly, that it's possible that those were formed by uh, over-generalized beliefs that are completely understandable that a child would make when called the name or ignored by his parents or sexually assaulted or beaten to a pulp. Um, And it doesn't need to be big for you to make an uh, a generalized belief about what life means. And that's the other thing is that um, trauma doesn't have to be have necessarily a negative connotation. I guess what I'm suggesting is that it can form limiting patterns of thinking and behavior later in your life. And it could have just been like, you won an award. And then like- This is what I was gonna say. I think that the, the idea that it's something happens to you versus is trauma is how much it impacts you today, mm-hmm. right? And everybody's going to be impacted to different degrees. So one person could be bullied all the time and it could turn into a good fuel or it could be something that didn't bother them as much as one person who was bullied one time, but it really stuck with them. Mm -hmm. So it's not like any of these things are objectively more or less traumatizing. It's that every person's psyche is different. Every person's home is different. You know, maybe someone that gets bullied less but goes to a a loveless house is going to end up much more traumatized Mm -hmm. than someone who was brutally bullied in school but had an amazing home life you know uh and but it's not so much about having a judgment on anything being a certain way it's just recognizing for yourself maybe there's things in your life that aren't good that would be good if you went back and found the root cause for why you have that habit or Mm -hmm. why you react that way Mm -hmm. that's kind of how i think of it yes and 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 it i i don't know what the therapist would say but uh take a great example that you were praised i I told the story last week of how uh, i punched an eight-year-old knocked him down at age and six. At age six. Very important. Very important detail. <laughs> I was six. He was picking on my sister. I gave him a bloody nose. And I was praised like, wow, you did protect it. And it didn't, wasn't trauma, but it instilled this idea in me that, wow, this is amazing to protect your family 
is fucking awesome. But also, whenever anything is awesome, whenever receiving an award is awesome, there's a flip side mm. to everything. So if I get love for something, I don't get love for not that. Like so failing is to exactly. Be a so failing to be a protector, failing to get the award, whatever. And it, it doesn't have to be traumatic to create patterns of behavior that just make you miserable today without you even recognizing mm. that that's driving you. Um, so yeah, if you don't want to call it trauma, I'm, I'm not attached to the word. But no, what Some I, stuff happened from age zero to 10 that stuck with you and affects mm -hmm. you in a way such that you're not uh, potentially having the best behaviors or mindset and you could, by addressing them or doing certain things, just be happier. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if you guys want to see the full list of Patreon questions, we right now still are able to answer all of them, I believe, as they come in. If that ever changes, we'll let you guys know. But it's available to all of our patrons. Also, some of the updates with the books that I'm reading. We're trying to figure out if you have any other suggestions of things that we can do to entice you because that is what enables Justin to work even harder yeah. <laughs> on the podcast but, and crank out clips. But every Patreon question right now does get answered. So I see people on YouTube yeah. being like, why was my question answered? Well, we have 14 Patreon questions yeah. today. So uh, we're going to do those first and then we get to a couple YouTube ones. And so there's tons of extra content on the Patreon if you sign up at any level. Whatever you do, thank you guys for watching and I'll see you, I guess, next week. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.